missed that snap lead. You know? Oh yeah, how'd the last snap go? It was fine. It's just we miss you, Jake. We can't do the show without you. We need you. You're <laughs> you know, you're one of the meeples in the logo. We never decided which one was who, but I don't think we should ever decide. It no. should always be ambiguous. Yeah. Let the listener decide for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of the many ongoing you know, things to, like, pay attention to in each episode. Like, oh, which meeple are they? You know, will Kyle ever get root? You know, just, like, the kind of, like, big arcs of the show. Speaking of which, I just uh, unboxed my Marauder expansion um, oh. in order to complete today's guide. And you guys, every component brought me to the verge of tears. They are <laughs> so cute. I love holding them in my hands. Every card has like this amazing vinyl feel. Like the player boards are so much bigger than you think they're going to be. Are they the same size as the other player boards? Exactly the know. same size. Kyle doesn't ever. I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about this. Yeah, Kyle the poor guy's not never seen a board. Yeah, yeah. I just have a distant memory of what they're like, but I think they're the same size. <laughs> Why don't the dice just hop up when you roll them? I don't understand. <laughs> oh, hilariously. <laughs> I uh, I did roll the mob die twice, Fox both times. Wow! Whoa! Confirmed. IRL <laughs> jank confirmed. Did you immediately just put the die back in the box? <laughs> I actually rolled it a third time and it was rabbit, but still. Yeah, I mean, well, I heard I actually um, read on Cole's design diaries that uh, the mob die just uses uh, dot random for its like coding. <laughs> Isn't that right, Jake? <laughs> But what's the code within dot random? <laughs> wheels within wheels. It all comes down to zeros and ones, okay? So how does it code to choose a zero or a one? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> We're not the people that would know the answer. If it's you know the just... answer, put it in our Discord. Because I'm genuinely pretty curious. Anytime someone uses dot random, there's just a person in like a bunker rolling a dot. And then they, re- <laughs> they type also- in. <laughs> Hi, I'm dot. <laughs> there is <laughs> dot random. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> when my parents gave birth to me, they knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Into the four. bunker you go, dot, my father said. It's a, it's a five. <laughs> It's a 12. I guess there is no such thing as randomness if the algorithm isn't truly random and if dice rolling actually has, you know, physics to it, right? Right. There's a uh, dice tower at my work that we sell, and I'm convinced that I can roll a 20 with the dice tower each time. I mean, not each time, but like every third time. It's like how, how I drop it in. This is a pretty simple experiment to put to the test, Sam. Oh, I've been doing it. <laughs> you mean you do do successfully. Every third roll is a 20? I had it for a while, and then the last couple times I've tried it, I haven't been able to do it. Okay. But I swear, for a while, I could roll a We're 20. We're bordering on a Monte Carlo situation here, <laughs> Sam. I'm just, I'm betting on Rhett. I'm right? just saying, I'd put a million dollars on it <laughs> that I could roll it on the third time. It's just one of those D20s where every third side is a 20. <laughs> yeah, that's an easier way to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed last week's episode. I listened to it. Next to a pool in Hawaii, as a matter of fact. It was really great to listen to. I mean, that's how our that. podcasts are meant to be listened to. Yes. Yeah. If you aren't next to a pool right now, why are you? What are you doing? Come on. That's the only way to get good at Root is first to relax. All right. <laughs> I was not stressing about the rules. 
No. But what I did miss, though, was any updates on Root News. Root News! I know that was a transition because we did do Root News last week because there was a lot of Root News last week. You know it was a transition because afterward we mentioned that it was a transition. That's the only way we do it, baby. (laughs) Correct. We have to talk about it. (laughs) Um, We got Root Jam, which is ongoing. Jake, are you excited about making a fan faction? I absolutely am. I haven't even thought about it until just now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys work on one while I was gone? We no. talked about this. No, we've all been very busy. Yeah. I um, I actually have started to create the fan faction. Ooh. I actually have kind what? of a cool idea for it. All right. Okay. Idea for it. It. okay yeah. so, so this is the idea. So it starts off as, a, as like a kind of basic faction. But as soon as the first warrior dies in this faction, it changes. And becomes this thing that it, it becomes like split into two kind of competing ideologies. And there's like a couple of trackers that like migrate as you take actions in the game and it pushes it one way or the other. Ooh. Um, so it's like the the first warrior that is killed sort of like triggers this this like mutation in the faction and it becomes like a, a split thing. Is it depending on the clearing in which they're killed? What's the determining factor of like which branch? And did they have to be killed in battle or removed in any way? Oh my god, that's a. Those are great questions that I don't have answers to yet. But uh, that that was just kind of the main like overview that I'm working on. It actually is really hard to have like a toggle, like a a split faction is quite difficult to wrestle. There's a there's a not very good 4x game, a video game called Humankind, where the culture menu of it. Uh, everything is a binary choice it either puts you on like one side of a spectrum or other and there's Mm -hmm. four different charts whether it's like kind of like a more conservative uh, approach to building an empire or maybe like branching out and getting more uh exploratory and such right uh but each binary choice like tips you on a scale which is kind of a fun way to explore it interesting yeah i I think i think something along those lines is Mm -hmm. kind of how i'm imagining it as well yeah i kind of think of like a little um like a little bead, one of those little game markers mm. that sits in the middle of a, a spectrum and then kind of slides one way or the other based mm. on actions that you take in the game. Or it's even like a web and you kind of go in different directions. Ooh, depending. that's an interesting idea. Jake, are we creating a fan faction right yes, now? Yes, we are. That's this episode, folks. <laughs> I know the title says Lord of the Hundreds Guide, but we're scrapping it. We're talking about philosophy boxes today. <laughs> oh, I do like that. Here's Here's my pitch for a fan faction. It's ants, okay? Um, but ants aren't the same size as everything else. So your warriors are like half the size of normal warriors. Oh, okay. And they're like a new piece classification of like tiny warriors. Minis. <laughs> <laughs> or half a piece. Yeah. Each piece counts for 0.5 rule. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. That's cute. Well, speaking of uh, weird uh, fan factions, the Weird Root Tournament just finished their uh, first weekend of games. Uh, Game one, very interesting. I don't know if we're going to do a recap of every game of the uh, Weird Root Tournament, but for sure, uh, we wanted to highlight that this event is kicking off. And just to give you kind of a flavor of what this tournament is, because it's definitely different than the one, the winter tournament that was just going on. This game featured the following factions in a five-player game. We had the Rats, the Woodland Alliance, the Molds, the Spinners, which are spiders, 
and Ooh. the Marquistadors, which is an alternate Marquise fan faction. Um, and Thewey won as the Rats. Very nice. <laughs> so great job, Thewey. Well done against real and fake people. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sea Coyote was in that game too. So Ooh. going up against some good competition. Just in a quick nutshell, what do the two new factions do? Uh, the spiders are spiders. And the Marquistadors have somewhat of like a decree looking thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I was able to gleam. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to check out the specifics of uh, that game, I'll put a link in the description of the pod. Awesome. And then uh, another piece of root news here: Lord of the Board, friend of the show and great content creator, is also releasing his Lord of the Hundreds guide. Uh, it may or may not be out when this episode drops, but it will be out uh, relatively around the release of this episode. So go check that out. Subscribe to his YouTube channel, like the video. And uh, leave a comment that said, we sent you. Yeah. Ooh. I oh, love yeah. That. What, what should we have all the Wimmies comment on Lord of the Boards video? Uh, I think that sh- they should just do the chant. Oh, just, so no, just the root chant. Just root, root, root. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a good absolutely. idea. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple. Yeah. The algorithm loves repetition. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> uh, and then a little piece of root news here. We have been cooking up uh, some kind of fan faction here. Uh, the newest hireling is joining the game. And of course I'm referring to Jake having a baby. Jake and his (laughs) wife are having a baby. Yeah, I'm very excited about our hireling. And I believe we're launching a new Patreon tier where you get to name (laughs) Jake's baby. That's right. How much is it? How much does it cost, Jake? Well, it's seven hundred and fifty dollars to submit an option. And then it's a quarter million dollars to submit what's called an elite option. Now, the elite option will get favor, and we will uh, also maybe do an abru- like it's, it's almost guaranteed to be at least a middle name of some sort. <laughs> almost guaranteed. Um, and Well, it's really just almost guaranteed because you can only change a child's name legally so many times in a year. So if multiple people choose it, then I will have to change the kid's name throughout a childhood, which is fine. It's just a middle name that we'll have to switch. Yeah. Right. And I mean, the show could really use... Really use the buzz, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's what we really need is the legal drama that'll come from my child's court proceedings. <laughs> yeah, this is my first kid. I'm very excited. And uh, thanks for making it Root News. L- yeah. Little hireling. Of course. We're all very excited. Also, I'm still trying to ship your baby and Matt from Space Cat's Peace Turtles baby so that it could be the ultimate board game baby <laughs> podcast. You're trying to match baby. make one person who's not even existing yet? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, he's existing. I, I felt his little kicks. He's, yeah, he's getting big. It's what people did in the times of king and queens, anyway. That right? is true. You yes. know what I mean. Okay. I feel like Good. that's where we are. That's for what we board need to go back to. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. Yeah. yeah, galactic emperor and ruler of the woodland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bring them together. Galactic emperor is not a bad name. Galactic, <laughs> galactic Michaels. And just for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you could submit. The... All right. I think for a quarter million, I could convince Katie uh, for like well, six months. Tell that's Katie his name. if it's if it's actually going to happen. Oh, right. You just another... have to be like, I feel very strongly about this name. <laughs> I remember our old segment. Don't tell Katie. That was really fun. <laughs> All right, guys. Enough chit chat. Enough riff raff. It's time to get into the Lord of Hundreds guy. Woo! <laughs> 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 
That is the sound of oncoming violence, for sure. <laughs> that's that's the sound of one moody son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, the Lord of Hundreds. I mean, what do we even say? It's a new faction. It's the most aggressive faction in Root now. You got a special warrior that's a warlord who's very moody, changes his moods every time. Lots of warriors. I mean, where do we even begin? Oh, this this faction is an entire universe unto itself, and it is swiftly becoming, I think, maybe my favorite faction in the game. What? Which is huge for me, because <laughs> I, I definitely am, like, a very loyal person to the factions that I like, and mm-hmm. Warlord has kind of taken the prime spot, I think, for me. I, I just, like, really love all its mechanics and the way that it works. Uh, but to get a sense of the flavor of this faction, Jake, do you want to read us the theme overview? The Lord of the Hundred suffers no fools and allows no dissent. During their evening, they score points based on how well they oppress their foes. The more clearings they rule that have a hundreds piece and no enemy pieces, no warriors, no buildings, nothing, the more points they score. To grow in power and attract warriors, the Hundreds must gain items and add them to their towering horde. Leading the Hundreds is the Warlord, a warrior demagogue whose fickle mood gives them an ability for the turn. Their Warlord is obsessed with hoarding, so as the Hundreds gain more items, they will have fewer moods to choose from. Declaring themselves as the true voice of the Woodland, the Hundreds can incite mobs, which destroy enemy buildings and tokens, and raid ruins for items. Action is so cool. <laughs> you got a big old rat king who's like loving their horde so much. And then Ugh. once they get like a sword, they're like, I don't want to be wrathful anymore. <laughs> I've got my sword now. They are kind of the quintessential war game faction. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if if you like this game, but don't like the Lord of the Hundreds. Uh, my question to you is, are you sure? Because <laughs> this is this is awesome. Like, this guy's a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. It's so fun under the hood. I do feel like this is leans into Root as like a game where we punch each other a bunch. Yeah. And yeah. I love when games have this kind of energy and this kind of like attacky flavor. Yeah, th- this, this faction is so thematically successful, in my opinion, because it's just like all the awesome things you want to be, right? You're like a moody, <laughs> like warlord with all these like forces, and you're just like trying to gather up a bunch of items and oppress things, start mobs. <laughs> it's historically true, too, because tyrants are always moody. Anyone who's oppressive is, is a moody person. Mm-hmm. They can't control their emotions properly, hence the oppression. It's how they get power, how they feel good. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just funny that, like, sometimes people score because it's like, oh, great. Yeah, you put another sawmill on the board. Good job, cats. And we're all like, oh, the cat's taking over the woodland building infrastructure. And then this guy's like, I'm going to oppress you. (laughs) I would like some points, please. Yeah. I love that. It's called just straight up oppress. It's like yeah. not trying to sugarcoat it in any way. I feel like we're always like finding the way. We're like, oh, actually, the Woodland Alliance, like they they take violence too seriously. You know, they they go, they use too much violence to get what they want. Even if what they want is right, the warlord's like, I don't care what is right. I will burn it all to the ground. Yeah, none of it is silly or like fun. Like none of his moods are jovial or <laughs> cranky. It's just like relentless. Well, he's got jubilant, I guess. What? <laughs> yeah. jubilant, jubilant is a little fun. Yeah, yeah. rowdy. 
Rowdy's kind yeah, of fun. But in both of those, he's destroying something, right? Yeah, that's true. It is quite destructive. You're right. Yeah, jubilant, I suppose, is the closest to joy. But like, even if none of them are adorable. I believe jubilant is the one where it spreads a bunch of mobs, though. <laughs> yeah. Correct. So, so jubilant yeah. with fire is what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like handing out pitchforks. Um, yeah, in both of those, he's drinking. I think that's the problem. Yeah. So great. Okay, so uh, just to give you guys a quick uh, overview, in today's guide, we're really not going to go through and teach you, like, how each of the things of Lord of the Hundreds works, like, uh, how to play. This is more going to be a little higher level, like, strategy discussion. So some familiarity with the kind of, like, base mechanics of this faction are going to be really helpful for this kind of intermediate guide. If... There's one piece of media that we could totally point you to to get up to speed before you listen to the rest of this guide. I would say Nitro Reb's video on how to uh, play the Lord of the Hundreds is a must watch. It is excellent. He does a great job taking us through all the bits and bobs. So that is a great place to start. I'll add to that the Badgers were very much a puzzle in the Marauders expansion. And these guys don't seem like a puzzle, but they kind of are in terms of like how you are restricted by the horde that you build versus the emotions that you can portray. <laughs> Sorry, the moods that you can inhabit. Uh, and like how you can only inhabit those moods once per turn because you have to switch every turn. So there is a finesse to that. And Nitrov lays it out real well. But I would take a really good look at that board and kind of ingest a lot of that detail because the order of operations is very specific for this faction. Yeah, and we're, we're going to end up talking a little bit about these like interlocking mechanisms. Again, one of my favorite things about this faction is that under the hood, all the mechanics are super fun, really engaging, and they play off each other in such an interesting way. It requires such a good like sense of balance and strategy to even know like the best way to operate this faction. Before we do our big dive here, let's kind of get a 10,000 foot view of how this faction has been performing in tournaments. Uh, the recent winter tournament was actually the first kind of competitive event that Lord of the Hundreds made an appearance in. And I would say the Hundreds did a pretty decent job in the winter tournament. They were chosen 36 times Ooh. over the course of the tournament, and they won 15 of those games. Which Whoa. is a pretty, a like surprisingly high That's win really rate high. Yeah. compared uh, kind of among all the factions. So the Warlord had a great showing. Uh, in this year's winter tournament and just overall was a very popular faction to pick as well and i think it's because they're fun to play but let's kind of talk about why they had such a good run in the tournament so as we mentioned this faction is the most aggressive like the reddest of the red factions it is literally red mm -hmm. and from the very first turn you're incentivized to go out and just punch your opponents as hard as possible every turn smush them into dust that's that's what we're aiming for with this faction. In fact, the scoring depends on it. So you got to go out yeah. there and do it. <laughs> yeah. The tough part about this faction is they tend to score slow and steady, similar to the cats, right? Just a, a trickle of points every round, trying to like amp that up over the course of the game. But they can kind of snowball if they get their action economy online with a big horde of items. I describe it here as their, their action economy can become nearly moles level hot if they have a fully loaded item horde to back it up. And in tournament play, we've seen that warlords that can gather such a formidable horde tend to do better, obviously. But not always. In the game that I played in round one, game two, the warlord got to 29 points with zero items. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. So this faction by itself, no enhancements, 
is still incredibly strong. Hmm. Um, I, I want to point out one Warlord win that I found incredibly enjoyable from the Winter Tournament, and that is round one, game five, where Sea Coyote played the Warlord on the summer map. And we'll have a link to that game in the, in the podcast description. So it, uh, the way I describe this game is that he used his early game to take over a bunch of clearings, but then kind of slowly built up his power and strength, got a big presence of rat warriors, and then went out from that position of power and just kind of suppressed all of the other factions. There was like a moles player in that game that was doing really well and just got crushed under a tidal wave of red meeples. So yeah, the the hundreds don't race very well, but they can keep the factions that race well suppressed long enough mm. to pull out a victory. Nice. I'm uh, interested to push back on the whole they do just fine without a horde statement, but I know there have been examples where they have done it, including in your game, for sure. I'm, I guess I'm wondering at the outset, is that like a heat shedding thing where if like they kind of got in a corner and didn't really get to expand well, or the Vagabond stole all the items from the ruins before they got to go loot. Is that like a, oh, the Warlord's not much of a threat, and they're not scoring as regularly as they would, so we don't need to worry about them. Then suddenly they persist, right? Yeah, I mean, in that game specifically, it was because the Vagabond stole the ruin items. Yeah. So they just didn't have a you know a good way to access any of those items. Everyone's being very careful about what they crafted. That's the worst part, is when the Vagabond's in, they take all the items, and then everybody's still scared to craft, which then the Warlord can't loot additional, right? So yeah, then he's exactly. out of options. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But uh, the player just used every single action super efficiently to, like, mm -hmm. take over the board, and then that oppressed scoring started to build up over time, and um, slow and steady. So they still fought with full fer fervor? They still, like, went forward with as, as much aggression as normal? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. it was on a winter map that... That game, if I remember correctly. And Kyle, um, were you Woodland Alliance? No, I was um, the Arbiter Vagabond in that game. Oh, you were the Vagabond. <laughs> yeah. <for laughs> you sure. said the Vagabond stole all the items, and yeah, you were that me. person. <laughs> <laughs> he did pop his collar when he said Was it, the though. Woodland Alliance in the game? <laughs> I don't think so. I could be wrong. Let's find out. I mean, okay, we'll get to question, this. Why when weren't it... you the Woodland Alliance? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> The Woodland Alliance was in that game. Yeah, I'm very interested once we get to faction interaction to talk about Lord of the hundreds and the Woodland Alliance. Yeah. Um, they have a very the kind versus of versus the mice. Yeah. It's interesting. Fraught relationship for sure. All right. Let's, um, let's quickly go over all the components for this faction. There's kind of a lot of pieces. Uh, Wait, but are you talking have... about doing our building slash token importance slash component overview? <laughs> yes, our, our building wonderfully... slash token importance component overview. <laughs> <laughs> We're great at titles for subsections. I have a couple of uh, subsection headings that I'm proud of, but this is <laughs> this is fun and clunky. Yeah. So this faction has a reach of nine. Nine. That's the nine. second highest. Second only to Marquise de Cat. The Marquis de Cat, yeah. Puts it on par with the Erie Dynasties, uh, one above the uh, Keepers in Iron, which had a reach of eight. I believe the birds have a reach of seven. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So it, it puts them above the Erie Dynasties. Does anything else have a reach of nine? No. It's just Lord of the Hundreds. Mm -hmm. Well, they're special, and this is why. They've got 20 warriors plus one warlord. Uh, which is a, a special warrior we'll talk about in a second. They come with six stronghold building tokens, which are incredibly important to construct and maintain, especially in the early game. Got five mob tokens, 
She'll be spreading around the map, uncovering ruins and destroying cardboard. Uh, it comes with a mob die, which always rolls fox, colloquially. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a, it's a six-sided die. It's got two instances of each suit. Um, rabbit, fox, mouse on it. Uh, it helps the mob token spread to adjacent clearings of that suit. And then we have the eight mood cards, uh, which we will definitely get into in more detail in a second. Um, but that's overall what we're going to be looking at with Lord of the Hundreds. And I, does anybody else find this weird? It's like most faction player boards have like a slot for every piece that comes with, you know, the faction. Um, usually you're like placing a building and kind of revealing something on the track underneath, like the lizards, for example. In Lord of the Hundreds, you just got these mob tokens. They're just like lying around in front of the player board. And then you got these strongholds and they're just like wherever you want to put them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I... It is a little weird to organize your play area as the Lord of Hundreds uh, because it doesn't have the slots, but like uh, the cat's wood doesn't have a slot either. You know, that there are true. other instances where I think it's the only building, though, that's not on that player board. Is right. Is this because like all the player boards incorporate the tokens removal from that board into a mechanic of the faction, generally like card draw or other things? Right. Yes. Yeah, I think generally and this speaking, one just doesn't. True. It's just that the rules for it in terms of like uh, recruiting and such for strongholds or just the raise effect of mobs it just affects in the in the daylight or in the course of the day. Right. The course of the turn. Yep, exactly. All right. Scoring method for this faction. Sam, how would you describe the scoring method for the Lord of the Hundreds? It's steady. It slowly climbs up and then they have like an action economy to keep everyone else's scoring from getting out of control. <laughs> okay. Crabs in a bucket, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it does feel like they're like the rudiest faction in that way where they're like, they start out scoring just a few points. It's kind of hard to get those first points. But at the end, it's not like they score like 10 points in a turn. They are still right. having to battle for cardboard points, which is easy for them. They have a lot of actions to facilitate this, but they kind of have to remove a lot of cardboard to get their extra points. Because even if you oppress six clearings, half of the map has no other players' pieces, you score four points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay? Yeah. That is also what the Eerie scores on turn four, just by like doing what they do naturally. The cats can even place a, like their fourth sawmill for four points, right? Something like yeah. that, fourth or fifth sawmill. So regardless, it, it's not like a point buffet for the rats, even when they're fully online. I think part of their scoring comes from crabs in a bucket. <laughs> part of their scoring comes from crabs in a bucketing other factions down to their level. <laughs> I think you were probably <laughs> conjugating the verb. <laughs> I was going to say. Bucketing. It's my favorite new verb. To um, bucket. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's a good time now to kind of dig in on a press and talk about specifically what it is. And because uh, this is our main scoring mechanic mm -hmm. as Lord of the Hundreds. Oppressing clearings. The thing we want to aim for from the start of the game all the way through the finish. So the Warlord scores points at the very end of their turn of evening uh, by oppressing clearings. That means ruling a clearing that has a hundreds piece and no enemy pieces. I, I found this language to be like kind of weirdly specific. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's because now that hirelings are a thing in the game, um, hirelings do help you rule clearings on your turn. 
but it specifically has to be a clearing you rule that has a hundreds piece. Mm-hmm. So it can't just be a clearing that has like a hireling that you control. Is a hireling an enemy piece? Not when you're in control of it. Got it. Okay. So if a hireling is under someone else's control, it's considered an enemy piece. Yes. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Are they ever neutral? No. Well, they are neutral at the beginning of the game, but they are all considered enemy pieces to everyone at that point. Okay. That's what I want yep. to know. Great. Yeah. No friendly uh, uh, feline physicians right. or uh, if that popular band here. is playing a song before anyone controls it, that is your enemy. You must crush them. You have to oppress their songs. You stop that music! <laughs> Turn it down! I'm kind of weirdly getting into it, actually. Feel this Okay, groove. I'm rowdy. You're right. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So now, oppressing the entire map, or even half the map, at six clearings is pretty unusual, I would say. Unless you've had a really successful crabs in a bucketing type of situation. It's very <laughs> unusual to mm-hmm. oppress a full six clearings to get that four points. Uh, but also, so is oppressing zero clearings, right? Usually you're going to have something in between. What I like to say here is that the the core of your scoring is going to be three main clearings that you oppress every turn. I say three because three is the threshold for scoring two victory points from oppress. That has to be your baseline. That's what you want to aim for. If you can secure three clearings every round, that's something you can build on to score more oppressed points in the future. You're really going to want to maintain three as like the absolute minimum. Now, Kyle, you said this is our main point scoring mechanism. Is it fair to say that this is like our reliable point scoring mechanism? And maybe there is no main because we have to rely on crabs in a bucket, right? Because if if our strategy here holds true that we want to at least get three, that's two points a turn. And there's like on an average of like between eight and ten turns in a game, right, at those extremes, then we're going to maybe max out at 20 points. So those cardboard are equally important. A hundred percent. Yeah, this is going to be maybe half of your points over the lifespan of a game which means you gotta make up you know a solid amount of points from mm-hmm. going out there and uh you know waking up early <laughs> going going to find that cardboard and uh you know just punching everyone in sight but kyle <laughs> why can't why don't we just get a bunch of points from crafting well you can get points from crafting but here's the rub we have this thing with the Warlord called the Horde, and the Horde is a, tr- uh, it's two different tracks, Command and Prowess, that each get specific items. So to, to maximize your oppress passive scoring, you need actions, right? Moving and battling. And the way to get movement and battle is by building up your Horde of items. Each track starts at automatically at once. You're going to have one Command and one Prowess, or one Advance, the Warlord action. Uh, but the, depending on the items that you can get for the horde, uh, those will start to slowly ramp up over time until you are acting like the moles wearing sunglasses and just running around and crushing everybody. <laughs> um, crafting with Lord of the Hundreds is a little funny because they have this ability called Contempt for Trade. Ooh, so much contempt for this trade. Jake, do you want to read for us Contempt for Trade? It's, it's written yeah. uh, down below there. Oh, it's 14.2.3. Whenever the hundreds craft an item, they may take the item but score none of the listed victory points or may remove the item permanently to score the listed victory points. Parentheses and italics, they can still score extra crafting points from effects such as Master Engravers and 
the legendary forge. Ooh. Yeah, okay, so you gotta kind of make a choice here, right? You can either craft an item for the points, or you can add it to the horde. Um, adding it to the horde improves your action economy. Crafting it for points kind of helps to make up that gap that, that we were just talking about. Of note, don't get this confused with the Eerie Dynasty's disdain for trade. This is actually full-on contempt for trade. <laughs> <laughs> Eerie still gets a point. You might not get any points from crafting these things. <laughs> yeah. Who trades? We just kill each other. <laughs> I mean, come on. That may seem harsh, but like what we're talking about here is the command the hundreds uh, action and the advance the warlord action, which maybe we should detail real quick to make sure people understand why it's important. Absolutely. So the first track, command the hundreds, is exclusively filled by three items, boots, bags, and coins. I like to think of these as like the... Um, the logistical type of items, mm. right? Uh, you know, you need boots for your soldiers. You got to give them a bag that's got food in it and you got to pay their paychecks <laughs> or else they're going to desert. Mm -hmm. So command the hundreds. You got to have those logistics in place. Very nice. And uh, for command the hundreds, it's very standard. It's like move, it's battle and it's build. Build for the Lord of the hundreds is pretty expensive. You got to spend a matching card to place a stronghold in the clearing. Um, which is going to be a major goal of our faction, which we'll talk about a little more in more detail in the future. And then we have Advance the Warlord. Now, Advance the Warlord is kind of the same thing. You can move and then may battle for every uh, one point of prowess that we have. So it's exactly like a crusade. Yeah, exactly like a crusade. Um, except a lot more like scary somehow because you got your big warlord meeple carrying a giant flag going straight into battle. It's super awesome. Mm-hmm. It's faction rocks. Um, and prowess, <laughs> the exclusive items for this track are the hammer, the T, the swords, and the crossbow. Now, I like to think of this as more like the tactical kind of, you know, you got to equip your soldiers for combat to do prowess, right? You're advancing with your warriors with the latest technology. You know, the scary rat army is coming your way. And get stuff done. A T. <laughs> Well, Sam, they have to be caffeinated <laughs> to destroy people. That's the only way I'm advancing, bros, if you give me that tea. Give me some of that root tea, baby. <laughs> I gotta smash some skulls. It's real Dimitri have... McYarn of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to find that battle frenzy when you've had a strong cup of tea beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the last kind of core mechanic that we're going to wrestle with here is our moods. <laughs> A lot of this has been very concrete, right? We need boots. We need swords. This is like, how do you feel this morning? It's yeah. bird song. You wake up like... <laughs> you look in the mirror and realize how many people you've killed and what mood are you in? You know? Every morning he's like, I've got to change. <laughs> I can't keep doing this. This isn't the lifestyle I should be living. Okay. Today... I'm going to be jubilant, all right? <laughs> good morning, soldiers. Everybody say it with me. Good morning, Warlord of the Hundreds. <laughs> I've thought this multiple times throughout this episode, but if there's ever like an animated version of Root or whatever, I want Jake to be the Warlord so bad. <laughs> okay. Um, there's this like really funny inside joke where if a player forgets to change their mood... Uh, as as the warlord, uh, we just say that they have changed their mood to ennui. <laughs> <laughs> I feel nothing. <laughs> what does it mean to feel? <laughs> 
Um, there's a really cute uh, little bit of art that's kind of like on the player board itself underneath where you would place the mood card. And it's the warlord just like eyes closed, looking a little grumpy, but like not sure of what the mood is going to be yet. It's like very <laughs> cute. There's fire and cheese in the background. It's great. Yeah. So the, the moods are really what gives the Lord of the Hundreds its like special faction flavor. And I think it's the thing that makes me love this faction, like cherish it more than just a mechanical thing. But it's like, I just love the theming so much. Uh, so the moods are eight distinct cards that you have to change every bird song because no one wants to live in ennui. Uh, I have here the moods offer a wonderful variety of tactical and economic abilities for the warlord every turn. The important thing to know is that each mood is tied to a specific item and that mood becomes locked. It becomes off limits as soon as its item enters the horde. So, for example, as soon as you get a boot in the horde, you lose access to the jubilant mood. And now this is kind of a bummer for some moods, um, which you may want to access the whole game. For example, Relentless, which is kind of considered the top mood at the moment. Well, lucky you, there's a mood for that. You can actually re-unlock the mood that you need by using Lavish to jettison items in the horde in exchange for recruiting a couple warriors on the map. So in this way, there's, there exists this kind of nice push and pull uh, that intertwines these mechanics, kind of like we mentioned up top. And that leaves it up to the player exactly how they want to make progress in the game. You can use the moods to like regain uh, some special abilities at the expense of a little bit of your um, action economy. And uh, the timing is pretty uh, favorable to you. For instance, if you are wrathful, which require, or if, which means it has a little sword icon in the top, so if you have a sword, you can't be wrathful. Um, but if you loot somebody with a sword while being wrathful, you still remain wrathful for that whole turn. Yeah. It's only when you're choosing a new mood do you check which ones you can't have anymore. Yeah, so very friendly kind of way that that rule plays out, which is great. So this faction has some unique abilities that I think it's time that we talk about. Mm. And the main one, the most visible one, is... The Warlord himself. Jake, tell us a little bit about the Warlord. The Warlord. The Hundreds have a piece called the Warlord. The Warlord is a warrior that cannot be removed outside of battle, moved outside of the Hundreds' turn, or placed in any way except with the anoint action. Right. So somebody gets promoted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Clive, you're the new guy. <laughs> All right. How are you Clive? feeling today, Clive? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Raffle! All right, you got the job. <laughs> this guy gets it. Uh, yeah, the, the Warlord is a special, special guy. Also, the design of this meeple is so cool. Like, I held it in my hand for the first time today, and God, I just <laughs> okay. love it so much. You're speaking with more passion than I did about my baby. <laughs> <laughs> I shall name him Galactic Emperor. <laughs> Um, so there's some fun uh, things that exist because of this warlord's like very specific language. Note that he's invulnerable to a vagabond's strike ability with the crossbow. Usually strike can target a specific warrior. And uh, with the Lord of the Hundreds, you cannot remove him outside of battle. So strike would not apply. Also, false orders does not apply specifically to the warlord warrior. So if you can move all the other meeples out of that clearing, but the warlord is definitely going to stay. He's staying mm -hmm. his ground, you know. Uh, the lizards convert does not target the warlord. 
And it's actually, it's the only warrior in the game that can survive a favor card, a bomb, and a scoundrel's scorched earth torch ability, which is kind of awesome. That's so awesome. (laughs) And just remembering this is really easy because that was just like six things he named, but it's anything outside of the player's turn, right? Which is the vast majority of (laughs) like all those options. If it's outside of battle, it's... I don't even know what other options there are, right? It's like ambush can happen on your turn when you're attacking mm-hmm. and battle. That's pretty much how he gets uh, removed. Yeah. So he goes down the way that he wants to live by the sword, die by the sword. That is the warlord's deal. Super cool. Yeah. It's so cool that like somebody can like bomb a whole clearing and the warlord's like, I still stand. <laughs> yeah. Rising from the wreckage. Like <laughs> awesome. Now. I'm relentless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could you could even say he's he's a bit stubborn. Yeah. Um we have our last unique ability and that is one that you will probably use in your game because it is just that awesome. It's called Looters. Jake, tell us about Looters. At the start of battle as an attacker, the hunters may declare that they want to loot the defender so long as the defender has an item in their crafted items box and they therefore cannot loot the Vagabond. If they declare that they want to loot, the Hundreds deals no rolled hits. Very key phrase there. They deal no rolled hits. Mm -hmm. The Defender deals rolled hits, and the Hundred can still deal extra hits, such as from their Wrathful mood. Then, at the end of battle, if the Hundreds rule the clearing of battle, they take one item from the Defender's crafted item box. Yeah, this is a fantastic ability. Again, you're just filling up the horde based on items that other people have crafted. It's kind of like, you know how the Vagabond can aid uh, players for their items and they like give them a card and then you move up on the relationship track and it's like really happy. Um, Well, this is like the exact opposite of that. This is like you go into their clearing and you like you bring your whole army because you need to rule the clearing (laughs) and you stand there and you're like, I'm going to need that bag. (laughs) You know how kids used to trade food with you at lunch? And how that felt okay. This is the vice principal walking up to you and taking your Doritos. (laughs) Gonna need that bag of Doritos. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do. No, you can't. You're gonna roll some hits against that vice principal. You know what I mean? He's he's not gonna take him outside of battle. Well, no, you're not gonna (laughs) kill the vice principal. But you can kick his shins a little before he takes your Doritos. Beat up his his kid who also goes to that school. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, I experienced uh, looters is a fantastic ability, a great way to get things into your horde. I think, Kyle, you're right. It's the shadow aid. Um, But (laughs) I experienced in my uh, IRL game where I was playing the warlord, I had a wrathful mood. I had partisans. And I had uh, the Corvid conspiracy demoted hireling, which gives you an extra hit if you have buildings or tokens in that clearing. So I could loot. And still do three hits, three That's auto crazy. hits. Yeah. That's crazy. And I still did not come close to winning that game, but it was sweet. But that yeah. virtually guaranteed you probably ruled the clearing at the end of that fight. Right, right. That's the key part of this looter's ability is like there's a lot of stipulations. Mm-hmm. Largely that you rule at the end of that, which is generally quite doable as the warlord. But you you got to go pick on the weak ones, too. You can't just go against somebody who has a crafted item box if they've got like six warriors. In the right. Because they're Absolutely. going to essentially do hits to you. You're not going to do hits to them unless you got some extra ones. And then you have to rule. So, yeah, you got to be able right. to take a full battle. Right. Yeah. And so what this means in practice, obviously, is that a lot of the times when you're using looters, it's going to be against a paltry 
opposition, right? Mm -hmm. One warrior is a great target for looters. But the best target for looters is actually undefended cardboard Mm. because you don't need anything fancy to deal that extra undefended hit. So, for example, you can loot an undefended otter trade post and still receive a point for cardboard and gain the item to your hoard as well. Oh, Mm. that's fun. That's like cardboard with a cherry on top. Absolutely. That's got to be the best thing for the warlord, right? Because you're improving your action economy. You're uh, making up that points gap. Life is gravy. (laughs) (laughs) Life Life is is gravy. gravy. Life is gravy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, we've been talking a lot about these moods, and we've been even referencing some specific ones here, but I'd love just like a rundown of all the, you know, one-turn abilities that the warlord can have. So what are these moods? Yes, let's do them. Okay, so we start with, uh, I'm just going to kind of go through command and then prowess. So we're going to start with jubilant, which is the boot. Jubilant says, after you incite your warlord's clearing, you may roll the mob die to place a mob, as described in the raise step, first step of your birdsong. Place a mob up to four times. So jubilant is going to cause just like a scattering of mobs to appear on the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, mobs are obviously that token that has a torch and a pitchfork on it. Hilarious and so cute. Um, and the the mob tokens will help you remove all enemy buildings and tokens at the top of your birdsong in those clearings. Yeah, uh, Which is great. So jubilant, a nice way to kind of like get those mobs out on the map, get them rolling. If you want to clear those ruins to gain the items from them, jubilant is a great way to perhaps open your game of root as Lord of the Hundreds. As a reminder, too, you're throwing a bunch of mobs out there, which are tokens, therefore can be removed by other people. And their effect happens on the top of your birdsong, right? Top yep. of your birdsong? Yep. So they need to survive. Yeah, they have <laughs> to they persist. Don't, that's, a, that's points for your opponent. So that is the risk that you put in by using Jubilant early, too. Yeah, But definitely. I agree. I think Jubilant's most useful early because if they survive, they'll eliminate any cardboard in that clearing. The yep. issue is that in sight takes place in your evening. So when you use the jubilant move, or whenever you incite, you are throwing tokens out to clearings that you may or may not have warriors in, depending on how that mob die rolls. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to protect the mob tokens on the same turn you create them. That's the thing is like, they're, I mean, like mobs, they're unstable. So they (laughs) like thematically, it makes perfect (laughs) sense. But this is part of the puzzle that I was trying to talk about at the beginning of the pod, which is that like, there's a lot of order of operations stuff that don't guarantee your success with the pieces as they're written. You have to make sure that you're timing them right and protecting them correctly in order to utilize them fully. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Positioning is everything when it comes to keeping those mob tokens safe and trying to gain the most value you can from them. All right. Uh, next, we have the bag mood, which is relentless, kind of currently considered the best mood. Let's see why it's so good. Relentless says, whenever you advance your warlord and both move and battle, you may move or battle with your warlord. Like half of an advance. Wow. All right. So when you move and battle, you can then for free move or battle. Yeah, that's right. So when you both move okay, and right. battle. Yeah, yeah. we, you, we oh. get it. <laughs> it's, it's extra actions. And we can even say it extra times to get the idea across. But this is like, <laughs> this is free action economy for you. 
And you can chain this together, right? If you use your advance the warlord a couple of times and you fulfill all the requirements, you're getting like two, maybe even three extra actions during your advance the warlord step, which is completely crushing to your opposition. I mean, think of think of Brigadier. Like this is Brigadier level good. Mm-hmm. I've seen it used a couple of times to simply go wherever you want because they can go very far. Yeah. And as long as they're punching along the way, they can just keep doing it. They can yeah. even just do that great thing where you advance a whole army with your warlord, move, battle, and then use that extra move to go back. You right. know, <laughs> yeah. Just like That's have true. a place to punch and come back. It's this is such a good mood. Yeah, this is one of the most flexible um, action options that you have in your toolkit as the warlord, which is why whenever you get the bag in your horde and it locks this mood. Um, people feel sad and it gets commented <laughs> on every time that it happens in a the game. They're just like, well, they lost relentless. Like my mood is mopey. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I will say bag is like one of the most ca- crafted items because it's yeah. cheap and because it like in games with the vagabond or whatever, it's not going to like be the thing that undoes everything most likely. Right. So as a warlord player, you really got to think about when you're looting for those items or even crafting them which moods you're getting rid of and relentless might not be the one yeah you might hold off on this one this is the puzzle because we want as many items that we can get especially if it's competitive and there's a vagabond in there and if we can't get items because we're afraid of losing a mood it's just such a catch it's feel like a constant catch 22 mm-hmm. right so you really need to read the board very frequently as this faction because you need to decide what can I do realistically at this stage in the game? Is it worth me getting the bag to lose that mood, but also gain a little bit of command the hundreds? Mm-hmm. Right. And well, remember the bag is giving you one extra item on your command track and the mood it's taking away is completely based on your prowess track, right? The advance, the warlord step. So in a way you're kind of like locking you're you're reducing the potency of your advanced the warlord step, but you are boosting your ability to command the hundreds. This is a little bit of a trade-off, I would say. And our last uh, command item here is the coins, and that's attached to the rowdy mood. Rowdy says, In evening, draw one more card. If your warlord's clearing has three or more enemy pieces, draw two more cards instead. And these could be enemy pieces from, uh, you know, any number of factions. Collectively, there has to have to be three of them to kind of get that next tier there. Right. So if there's three cats, you're good. Yeah. If there's one bird, one cat, and one sympathy token, you're good. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of forgot about that. This is important because we haven't really talked about it, but the warlord at the end of their turn draws one card forever. But what if they? What if they built all their strongholds? Forever. <laughs> yeah. The strongholds cover nothing on your board. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. They're just out there. They're they're doing their thing. They're fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a one card wonder, the uh the old Lord of Hundreds. And the only way to get around that, uh, other than maybe a crafted improvement, is your rowdy mood. So a yeah. very key mood to take advantage of when necessary yeah the one card draw is one of the toughest things to kind of deal with as the lord of the hundreds not that you need a lot of cards right what do we need cards to build to build Mm -hmm. is that right build an insight build an insight so those are our two main purposes for cards beyond i guess crafting crafting, which we don't love we have a 
contempt for it. <laughs> and obviously improvements are always going to be great for anybody, but he's so card poor that this is semi-important. I feel like there was a meta when he first came out that people avoided this mood. Am I right in that or wrong? I think um, it just seemed a little bit like you know, all the other moods have this cool, like, action-y thing to do, yeah. right? It's something about the board state, whereas this is a purely economic, like, card advantage type of mood. And so people are like, meh, I don't know if I really want to, like, spend my whole, you know, my special action on just drawing another card. Like, that seems kind of lame. But I think it's actually pretty useful. And as we'll yeah. see, it's, it's in fact made its way into the rotation as one of the primary opening strategies for Lord of the Hundreds. It's really good when you're in a pinch, and I feel like the Lord of the Hundreds as the threat has been more noticed by other players about him. Like, uh, you might need to lean back a little bit and not draw too much heat, and that's a good time to just boost your economy. Yeah. As we know, root games don't always reach the eighth round, um, so there's a good chance that you will, will not see every mood equally. You won't see them all, like, one time in, in a game. But, but I do feel like Rowdy, because it's connected to the coins, and the coins don't tend to be crafted, like, super early in games... This is one that kind of sticks around and I've seen it come up, I think an average of like two times per game as Lord of the Hundreds. So this is one that is kind of like sneaky, sneakily pretty popular, I'd say. Good. Good to keep an eye on. It should be. Yeah. All right. And those are our um, Command the Hundreds item uh, connected moods. Now let's switch over to Prowess. Here we've got the hammer, which is connected to Bitter. And Bitter says... In battle with the warlord before the roll, place one warrior in the battle clearing per mob you choose to remove from the battle clearing and adjacent ones. Yeah, so this is a great way to get more warriors on the board, especially if you think your mobs are going to be battled away anyway. Um, So just to kind of like grok it, you choose a clearing. And you remove mobs from that clearing and adjacent ones, and you get to place warriors in your selected clearing for each mob you removed. Yeah. The way I like to describe this is uh, you can uh, use your bitter mood to reabsorb those mobs and turn them into honest, hardworking rat meeples. <laughs> yeah. What about you being bitter makes them less unruly, I wonder? I'm not sure. I mean, maybe they're just, like, tired of the mob life and they want to, you know... Mm-hmm. Rejoin the soldiering life. Unless he's like, someone gave me this hammer. I'm not feeling very bitter anymore. I forgive you all. (laughs) I love my hammer. I love my hammer. Can I choose adoration for my next move? No, because we're going to choose a different mood. It's called Grandiose. This one's connected to the T. Grandiose says, swap your advance the warlord step. And command the hundreds step. Yeah, so usually you have to command the hundreds first, and then you advance, and then this lets you advance and then command the hundreds. Yeah, what? Why would you even do this? What's right? even the point of that? Well, <laughs> I think we'll all tell you. Basically, this allows you to build after you advance. That, I think, is the main key, because the other actions are move and battle, which you got when you're advancing. So it's really about moving, battling, taking ground, maybe even removing buildings from building slots you need or something like that, and then being able to build afterwards. Yes. Uh, Actually, surprisingly, this is, uh, I would say, the third most common type of opening that we see from Lord of the Hundreds, which is pretty cool. Because it's a bit of an odd ability, 
Um, but I've I've been very encouraged to see people using it creatively to get their board presence rolling as Lord of the Hundreds. It's kind of important to get strongholds out there quick because your recruit is placing warriors equal to your prowess in the clearing with your warlord, then placing warriors in each clearing with any strongholds, right. one yeah. per stronghold there. So strongholds early is like going to get your army up to the hundreds level real quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be really hard to crabs in a bucket, everybody, if you don't have a ton of rats to be crabs. Yeah, that is true. And it also depends on like where are these... <laughs> Where are these strongholds located? If you can use Grandiose to swap your command and advance steps, you can actually like take a more aggressive uh, kind of second stronghold on your very first turn as the rats. And that can actually shape the game in really interesting ways. It gives you a more centralized kind of presence if you decide to like attack for the middle. And it gives you flexibility with crafting too, since those strongholds are also crafting pieces. Strongholds are, like, slightly deceptive in terms of their usage with Lord of the Hunters because they're only really used for just recruiting and crafting, right? That's, That's right. The only, yeah, okay. Yep. Whereas, like, most other people's buildings do another thing beyond yeah, that. Yeah, usually yeah. give them card draw or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yep. I mean, while crafting isn't super important, obviously recruiting is, so. I, I compare them to, like, a citadel. Right. But, like, a localized citadel, so it only generates... Warriors, like, at that specific location. Mm. All right, our next mood is connected to the sword, and it is Wrathful. Wrathful has some, like, really metal art on it, too. It's just, like, this this warlord rat with just, like, bright red-orange eyes, no pupils. It's just, like, <laughs> maniacal. I love it. Wrathful says, as attacker in battle with your warlord, you deal an extra hit. Oh, it's commander, baby. Yeah. Yeah, this one's good. This is really aggressive, right? This is saying, I'm going to take my warlord and all the rats with him. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to punch through a solid defensive wall. There's no fortification that can withstand, uh, you know, a couple of advances <laughs> with Wrathful. As a reminder, too, that whole looting aspect we talked of, That's this is the one that deals that extra hit because looting only uh, ignores the rolled hits. This is beyond that. Yeah, so th- they would be added on after the fact with Wrathful. Uh, super nice. Yeah, so th- in fact, you can actually loot a single warrior and remove that warrior, which helps you to oppress, right? Wrathful can be a very efficient way to um, increase your your uh, point scoring ability. It's really nice. You mean because you're not, even if you roll a zero, you will remove that warrior is what you're saying? Well, if you're, you loot, you're you won't deal to. any rolled hits, but you're guaranteed to deal that one extra hit to remove that yeah, warrior. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Nice way to find a little bit of efficiency. Gain the item, also gain the oppressed point. You want to do that whenever you can. Our last prowess item is the crossbow, of course, and that's connected to the first mood we start with in the game, which is stubborn. Stubborn says, in battle with your warlord, you ignore the first hit you take. And this effect persists, so as long as you've got this mood up on your board, your warlord is negating one hit. So if it's somebody else's turn and they attack you, you're going to be, uh, you know, shedding. You've got like a bulletproof vest on. You're stubborn. <laughs> An arrowproof vest. <laughs> yeah, so if somebody, for some reason, comes after you turn one, before you even have a turn, I should say, uh, yeah. it's going to be hard for them to take out your warlord, which, like, it should be. <laughs> Somebody's being a jerk. <laughs> this is, from a game design standpoint, a good, safe one to start everybody out with. But, but yeah. notably, you immediately change your mood on your first turn. So you can't stay turtly. Right. You can't be stubborn multiple times, which is kind of ironic. 
I refuse to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a what a great thing to start the game out with is is a little bit of protection up top because there actually kind of are shenanigans that can be done with the warlord, right? Like maybe this is a decent point to talk about, like the vagabond early assassination tactic, right? Be- you don't want that to happen to you where if, if your warlord gets removed off the board, that hamstrings your recruiting aspects early on. Big right? time. Yeah, that's it's pretty rough to lose your warlord at any point. But before your first turn, come on. Come that's on. that's terrible. And it, like the vagabond is someone who's capable of doing it. And he's the worst person to do it because then he's just going to steal all your items, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, guess, I mean, it'd have to be Arbiter with some good rolls. Even still, they can't do it. Not not first turn. I'm just saying early on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like early in general. You're right. First turn it's very unlikely. But like I guess an uh, arbiter could slip, explore, find the sword for their third sword and come after you. Do we right. do we return to stubborn very often in the game? And if we do, why? Um, I've seen stubborn pretty regularly. I feel like okay. it comes up at least twice every game. Stubborn, the reason you use it is because in the mid game, at some point, if you're doing well. The table is going to want to come after you and you mm-hmm. want to discourage that by saying like, okay, yeah, you can come after my warlord, but you're not going to be able to take it out. It's very safe. I've got stubborn. I'm resisting, you know, uh, the attacks. And if, as long as you have like a ball of warriors, that's going to probably survive if you've got stubborn going on. So it's a good mid game kind of resource to draw on to keep your, yourself safe and, and still like able to you know, compete and move towards your end game phase. And it says in battle, you could be attacker or defender for this. Correct. So you could go on a little advanced rampage and take minimal losses. Right. Yeah. That, so this is good for turtling. It's also maybe good for adventuring a bit as well. I mean, it's exactly like the keepers and iron thing. What did we say uh, on our guide, right? Like 75% of the time as attacker with this ability, you will not, even take one hit yeah 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 yeah. so survivability pretty high good good ability to have all right so that's all seven items but wait there's an eighth mood and that mood is lavish we mentioned this earlier lavish is not connected to any item at all and that's on purpose because it says at the end of bird song you may remove any items from your horde to place two warriors per item removed into your warlord's clearing but I thought items helped our um, action economy. Why would you ever want to remove an item? Yeah. Hey, I thought items were good for our action economy. Why would we ever want to remove an item? Hey, wait a second, you guys. <laughs> I thought that. Okay, let me answer then. Never asking a question again. <laughs> <laughs> the prowess and command track have uh, numbers on them below them. And those numbers are not always like equally spaced, right? Is it two, three, three, four? Is that right? Yeah, two, two, three, four. Two, two, three, four. Therefore, uh, you could drop down from two to two. So if you were missing a mood, for instance, that's really kind of, I think, the big reason. You could afford to drop something from two to two because those numbers are the same. So if you want to ditch a bag and suddenly your command goes from two to two, oh, boo-hoo, but you've got relentless back, you know? Yeah, exactly. And there's actually a little bit of efficiency puzzle with the horde as well. Uh, Since there's multiple instances of the items... And there's a few ruin items as well on top of that. Like, you could get three swords in your prowess track. Sure, you would lose access to Wrathful, but your prowess would be at three, and you would only be locking one mood, which mm-hmm. is really efficient, mm-hmm. right? Instead of having, like, a hammer, a T, and a sword, and locking away three moods for the same amount of prowess, 
it would just be the the one move that you'd be losing access to from the outset lavish looks like a last resort card but it's actually a very tactically advantageous card if used at the right time and yeah yeah and notice too that it's giving you warriors so i've seen people use lavish not just to unlock a profitable mood um, but actually to kind of like get a quick burst of hundreds warriors for a specific operation or if they feel that their warlord is in desperate need of backup um so to in order to like reclaim territory build a stronghold whatever they need this is a good way to supplement your warrior force by sacrificing an item or two if for some reason you've gotten an insanely large horde you also probably don't need all the attack the battles and moves because like you're gonna be stretched pretty thin at that point like the the board's gotta have some crazy states on it for you to be in that that place so it's probably it's it's probably worth getting rid of something to at least bulk yourself up for the incoming uh invasion yeah 100%. And that's the moods. I love those moods. Kyle, you've done some research about the mobs. How are we trying to use our mobs here? Okay, so I think it's fairly obvious that uh, spreading mobs at the beginning of the the game to try and open up those ruins for items is like a pretty clear goal. Mm -hmm. However, once you start spreading mobs, they keep spreading. And often it's kind of beyond your ability as the warlord to protect them all. And it's not always advantageous to just follow the mobs around blindly, right? Like you want to be pretty intentional about wh- where you spend those moves in battles. And if it's just to try and go after, you know, wild mob tokens to protect them from being, you know, killed by your opponents, it's just not going to be the most efficient way to play. So there is a balance to be struck. At the beginning of the game, those tokens might be a little safer, but... You may want to grab bitter to kind of clean them up as the game goes on. That's the one where you remove the mobs to get the warriors. Right. Right. But we ha- there's a couple of different ways to think about mob tokens. In fact, Squidmark has a nice quote here about using mob tokens as a way of kind of like atmospheric pressure almost, which is cool. He says, don't forget to incite on non-ruined clearings to pressure people. There have been games I've won because I incited on a useless clearing, one that had no buildings or tokens, and then let the fire spread to a juicy clearing on the next turn, then defended it for the burn points. Mm, Burn points. Yeah. It's like cardboard, but it's finely roasted. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So yeah, but just another good way to kind of make up that points gap. Uh, But yeah, having a mob nearby a clearing or... Perhaps in a choke point where it's guarded could be a nice way to zone out uh, your opponents from kind of spreading, right? Cats obviously don't want to build any sawmills on a clearing with a mob. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they do and they want the building slots to open back up. That is a a strategy for them. Uh, But yeah, use use the mobs intentionally. Don't let them spread out of control because if your opponents are scoring guac points, that's bad for you. You want to crabs in a bucket them, not let them get free uh, points to make their way in the game. They're also spending their battles attacking your free mobs and not attacking each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. More crabs, more buckets, less mobs. <laughs> okay. This analogy is getting to be a real crabs in the bucket analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of eating itself. <laughs> I know we have a contempt for trade. Mm-hmm. But we also are able to craft. So how do we reconcile this? What's our crafting ability? The hundreds have a decent ability to craft. But remember, those strongholds cost a card and you need to rule, which means that they have a similar 
cost to like the duchy's dig action which is pretty expensive you have to spend a full card in order to just get your crafting piece and the rewards are nice but it's expensive to get there the hundreds are way more oriented towards like going out and attacking and they obviously don't draw a lot of cards so the the chance to craft a card is actually like really nice if you're lord of the hundreds it's also kind of hard to like choose where your strongholds are because they're a matter of opportunity more than like oh this is the fox clearing i need or whatever right frequently that is the case yeah Mm -hmm. um during the course of the game we're going to want to try and at least maintain three strongholds as like a baseline um which is good for crafting but we have to kind of pick and choose let's talk about the base deck and the kind of main improvements that we're going to be looking to craft one that i really like is tax collector it's really not that hard to get one stronghold in each of the three suits and tax collector lets us remove a warrior from the board to draw a card during daylight which is so valuable that's good and it's just one warrior which we we have hundreds of we got all (laughs) kinds yeah literally hundreds (laughs) another one i like is royal claim uh going up from three to four is you know it's a lift but it's possible and since the the rats are you know, mostly based on ruling, clearings, and oppressing, Royal Claim is a perfect fit. I have not thought about this. This is cool. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to see rats craft this card. Reminder, yeah. in Birdsong, you may discard this to score one point per clearing you rule. So it's double oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Double oppression. Actually, maybe beyond about. double oppression because it's for each clearing you rule, whereas, like, oppression is for a fixed amount you rule, you get a certain amount of points. And you might also rule them with enemy cl- enemy pieces in them, and that would count towards Lord- royal claim, but not oppress. Right. Correct. Yeah. This is a red alert craft for the Lord of yeah. Hundreds, I would imagine. Dude, four strongholds on the map is a red alert situation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, dear Lord, <laughs> there's six warriors happening a turn. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah that'd be very frightening. <laughs> All right, we've got armorers, good old armorers. Yeah. This is basically just to keep your warlord alive in a desperate circumstance. Or if you really have to go after, uh, you know, the leader or whatever late in the game, this is just going to give you an extra kind of bit of survivability there. Also, Maybe it makes you can get like, out of it unscathed. Kind of ignore the the downside of looters if that's going to be an issue potentially yeah it could neutralize that um defensive dice roll exactly um we have stand and deliver i mean <laughs> who's going to craft stand and deliver but this does allow you to take a card from another player which yeah. kind of fixes the you know card poverty of lord of the hundreds however we are dishing out a point in exchange mm. uh which as we know we really want to try and keep the other factions as on a slow scoring tempo. So just handing out free points is not advisable. It's kind of a situational bonus though, right? You can like save Rowdy because you don't really need it. So you can do other things with your, with your moods. That's that a right? great way to think about it. That's a great way to think about it. It unlocks extra efficiency because you don't have to spend a mood being Rowdy. I still think you're going to get heat for mentioning stand and deliver. <laughs> well, yeah, more realistic to craft and, and potentially more useful for Lord of the hundreds is a scouting party, which mm-hmm. I think is an awesome craft for them because a single ambush can make a rat ball much more, you know, flimsy than it otherwise might be. Yeah. And anything that exposes that warlord to potential destruction uh, is is going to really harm your game, your scoring tempo. So scouting party, a nice bit of insurance to make sure that you're on a healthy track and stay there. This one's key. No one's going to initiate more battles than you. Therefore, no one is <laughs> at more risk of being ambushed than you. 
scouting party is solid. This is yeah. this is probably the best faction to craft scouting party. Maybe birds yeah, I, too. I kind of agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and lastly, of course, better burrow bank. You get an extra card. Yeah. Once in birdsong, you may draw draw a card and choose another player to draw a card. That's just off the dome. <laughs> I didn't have to look it up. That's just off the dome. Yeah, I feel like we mentioned this card in every faction guide because it's so good. But it really is so good for this faction. Yeah. <laughs> it's the false orders of the base deck. Let's just yeah, it is. Let's it is. let's say it. Let's say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going over to the ENP deck. First option for Lord of the Hundreds is, of course, false orders. Hey. <laughs> of course, this is good. Yeah, you don't even need yeah. it, but like, it's gonna be good. Well, if you're trying to clear out enemy pieces from a clearing. It's nice when half of them just leave on their own volition. <laughs> or if that faction that has a huge ball of warriors has uh, an item you want to loot, you have to rule that clearing. So this makes this more possible. That's a good point. Soften up the ground for a nice looters. Also, if you're trying to bop the leader and keep yourself competitive in the end game, this is the ultimate Swiss army knife of faction destruction. Um, to kind of like help repair this card starved nature of this faction, we've got Charm Offensive. So let's you draw an extra card in evening and dish out a single victory point to another faction. Uh, of note, you could draw a card with Charm Offensive that you then use to incite. Very cool. Oh, it's the start of evening. You mean it's before the incite step, you mean? Right. Right. I, okay. I don't know how important that is but if you're going to go over your hand hand limit which you won't maybe that could be helpful <laughs> well in games against the woodland alliance this actually could be really helpful because you might lose your only hand card that you draw the turn before during your raise step if you mm. destroy any sympathy smart nice. so this would be the one chance to like you know spread a, a mob somewhere important yeah right okay we got swap meat uh yeah just a little bit of card advantage Again, we need all the help we can get as Lord of the Hundreds. This could, you know, give you the chance to craft an item or something. Yeah. It'd be very helpful. Um, looking at the River Folk Company's public hand is a nice way to use a swap meet intentionally. Mm -hmm. I've, I've found that to be a nice um, way to get a bit of an advantage in the game. There's a card that we have not mentioned on almost any other guide, and that's Informants. Mm -hmm. Oh. I think Tell we mentioned in the Corvid guide. <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe so, yeah. yeah. In evening, if you would draw cards, you may instead take one ambush card from the discard pile. This is a great call, Kyle. Yeah, I think this is kind of a cool idea. I think the point of it is, since we're only drawing one card for the most part anyway, it might as well be an, an ambush. ambush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. It's great. And th the nice thing about it, too, is that that ambush, hopefully you don't even have to play it. Because everyone watches you pluck it from the yeah. discard pile and you yeah. say i'm putting this bird ambush in my hand be grandiose about that draw <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. let them know 100 percent um marine broker this might be also a top tier craft for right, Lord of the right, hundreds right. marine broker anytime an opponent crafts an item you draw a card you're just taxing their item craft by drawing a card and guess what else is good for you other people crafting items <laughs> yeah this is good <laughs> So this is a, a little win more for uh, for the hundreds, but I, I really like this craft for them. This is going to make people mad at you. <laughs> you're just like, well, that's not fair. We know what you're doing. <laughs> They're like, I'll um, draw a card and I will target you next turn. My yeah. mood's naughty. <laughs> <laughs> that's not one of the moods, Jake. Quit trying to make it a mood. 
I, we're gonna make it a mood. Weird root is all the other moods for the Lord of the Hundreds. Right. Naughty is a weird root. When the Lord of the Hundreds gets naughty, it's him in lingerie. Oh my god! Somebody photoshopped this mood. Uh, what is naughty? What is naughty's ability? Oh, you may look at another player's hand. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But you have to lift up your shirt. Yeah. Oh, so awkward. I love it. Um, okay, another card I, that I really think is great for the MP deck, it's actually a trio of cards, it's all the partisans. Because we just don't have that many cards in our hand, like, what do we care? We're pitching that card anyway. That's Bill's very true. That's so true. It's so cool. I did it. It's good. Partisans with Lord of Hundreds is really good. Sam, you mentioned it before, too. Mixing it with looters is such a natural way to keep scoring hits, even if you're not dealing any rolled hits. And being able to defend your warlord uh, with the threat of a partisans is really nice. And lastly, because we need to get rid of all of our enemies' pieces in order to oppress, if you roll poorly, this is just that extra bit of insurance to remove that last warrior that's going to give you a point. Yeah, the Lord of the Hundreds is the best faction to have this because they they generally have one card in hand, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, on average, it's one. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to throw this in there just because, Cole Worley, I'm, I'm shouting you out right now. Eerie Emmy Gray. Hell yeah. That's kind of nice for Lord of the Hundreds. It's a free advance at the top of your turn. The nice thing about it, though, is you get to recruit before you need to activate this card's ability. Right, as oh, opposed to, like, the right. birds. Yeah. Right. So, you're going to have all the warriors that you're going to have for that turn ready to go. You just decide where you want to put them. It's kind of like... Uh, the mood that we mentioned grandiose. before, grandiose. Uh, it's like having that as a crafted improvement instead of needing to do that as a mood. Yeah, that's really smart. You're right. Yeah, go out, move, battle, and then I can build in that clearing, and yeah. then I have an advanced step. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. I, yeah, and I think it's pretty nice. And you're going to want to move and battle every turn anyway, so you're going to keep it around for a while, which I think is cool. Lastly. Oh, this one is so obvious, but I, we have to mention it. It's Coffin Makers. Oh, God. <laughs> this is the maybe the most brutal crafted improvement for them. Uh, just because they're going around and punching warriors, losing warriors all the time, making other people lose warriors. They're going to be stuffing those coffins full of warriors every round. And they are making up that point gap using this crafted improvement. This is such a win-win for Lord of the Hundreds. I think there's too many good cards for them. <laughs> yeah. For a, for a faction that can't craft them well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing yeah. is like, if these things happen to come along your way and you're set up for them, do it. But it's hard to go. It's hard to go out of your way to do it. True. It's really good design, honestly, because so it, like their mechanics are so benefited by so many of these, but they it's a real struggle for them to find them in the game. Mm -hmm. Very much so. I mean, you're going to be looking at your hand. And it's going to be soup kitchens. And that's it. <laughs> and so, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, there's nothing you could do about that. Yeah. Oh, soup kitchens is going to get a special shout out later on. <laughs> I, I did want to mention, though, that the ENP deck has a lot of fox crafted, mm -hmm. uh, fox suit craftables that are nice for Lord of the Hundreds. And in that uh, C. Coyote game from round one that I mentioned earlier, he put a bunch of strongholds in fox um, to nice effect using the ENP deck. So could be one of those factions where you kind of focus on Fox clearings. Also might let you craft a sword at some point too, which is cool. So let's get into the meat and potatoes. This is how to win as Lord of the hundreds. We're going to break it into three sections. 
<laughs> now we know. Let's learn how to actually win. Listener, skip to now. <laughs> if you've been listening to the previous step, you should have skipped it. <laughs> we, we've been talking about openings with Lord of the Hundreds, and this is one of those factions that has a couple of competing options for how to open a game. And we've seen three dominant strategies emerge over the course of the Winter Tournament, and I want to touch on all three just briefly. Number one, the most kind of popular one that I've seen is Jubilant. Um, Jubilant's pretty obvious, right? You want to spend a card to incite on turn one and then generate a bunch of different mobs mitigating the rng of the mob die and kind of getting them to spread exactly where you need them to be this is going to let you set up on those ruin clearings and gather those items harvest them right away which is super nice get your action economy online the trade-off here is uh that it's likely going to cut into your early oppress just a little bit because you're going to have to focus on moving into those central clearings trying to kind of protect those mob tokens, which means you might not be doing as much battling. And leaving enemy pieces there to be burnt to the ground, right? Sure, sure, right. yeah. So They've you can't depress there because you need those pieces there for the points after. Which could be very helpful. Which are more points than you would have got from the oppression, theoretically, because that clearing is maybe 0.5 points, right? <laughs> Depending <laughs> yeah, on the true. formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, but gaining those items is really the the whole point of this opening. You, you're trying to get that action economy up as fast as possible. I equate this to like swaying Brigadier on turn one. There's other viable options for sure, but this one is going after those items as the number one priority, right? Okay, so that's the jubilant opening. The kind of major competing opening is Rowdy. Rowdy uh, is the one that lets you draw an extra card at the end of your turn. And the whole idea behind the Rowdy opening is that you're trying to spend your opening hand on turn one. That is, you're trying to craft a card, build a stronghold, and incite on turn one. And Rowdy lets you kind of restore that hand a little bit at the end of that turn. So if you're spending all three of your starting cards, you want to have a little flexibility going forward after that. So you can build another stronghold. Or if you draw the wrong suit, you can kind of mitigate that a little bit. I really like Rowdy as a turn one mood. I think it's very flexible um, and pretty balanced. Yeah, I mean, there's not really too much more to say. This this is pretty self-explanatory. Sam, when you played as Lord of the Hundreds, what was your opening mood? I did grandiose. Because that's what the cool kids do. Yeah, Grandiose (laughs) is the cool kid option. And that's kind of number three. I I see this one as like the up and coming opening strategy. I call this the tactician's opening because it's like pretty neat. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Uh, So basically the the whole point of this opening is you want to build an aggressive stronghold on turn one. And by aggressive, I mean more central and potentially in like a contested clearing. So you're trying to set up shop somewhere that's really aggressive. That means you're going to have more of a central presence. You're going to be generating warriors closer to the middle of the map where they're going to have a big impact. Um, As opposed to taking one of those like starting clearing, edge clearing strongholds that's just going to be generating rats in your back line, kind of not having too much of an impact, just sort of holding steady. This strategy, on the other hand, using Grandiose, lets you gain a foothold somewhere that's like strategically kind of, you know, there's some heat there. Um, I think this is a fun opening to try if you think that area control is going to be a big factor in your faction mix. Or if there's like a lot of choke points to navigate and you want to make sure that you can kind of get out of your area with no problems. Like on the lake map, I think this is actually a really strong opening, for example. It's a little underrated in my opinion right now. I think if it's used really intentionally, this can be very strong. Uh, And I hope we see more of it. All right. So those are the three openings. Jubilant. Rowdy. 
and grandiose. Jubilant gets you those, uh, hopefully will get you those items from the ruins. Rowdy's going to get you the extra cards that you're going to lack for most of the game. And uh, Grandiose is going to put you in a good position on the board to uh, recruit from. Yeah. And to punch faces. Is Grandiose the riskiest in terms of like, here we go, we're going for it kind of situation? Because I feel like obviously it's the most aggressive too. It is. I I would say it's risky just in the sense that you're turning down other good options to go for this option. You're choosing to prioritize your board positioning over card advantage or uh items and building up your action economy right so that's kind of the risk there i would say right if you don't get an item on your first turn uh then it's only going to be one advance so it's only going from wherever you started one step inland so i don't think like you don't put yourself in a risky position on the board but yeah kyle it makes a lot of sense you're you're trading off some other opportunities for it yeah one one other reason you might pick this mood is if the Vagabond is in the game and you're pretty sure that they're going to get to all those ruin items before you. Mm-hmm. Um, then this is actually just a nice way to start and just say that, like, yeah, I'm making this trade off kind of based on the calculation that you're going to, you know, another faction is going to grab those ruin items. So I'm not even going to waste time spread a bunch of mobs for no reason. Instead, just going to pick up a strong position. All right. So early game. Here's the top priorities. You need to try and oppress three clearings. That's your baseline. It's going to get you two points at the end of every turn. That's just the main kind of like oppress priority. Get those three base clearings. If you can get more, awesome. And you need to build a stronghold. You want to get to about three strongholds. I think that's a good like baseline as well. So three and three. That's what you're aiming for in those early turns. If you can build that stronghold on turn one, even better, because you're going to continually recruit, right? The thing that competes with this is, should you go for the ruin items? Like I said, if the Vagabond's in the game, probably going to not win that race. They're, they they do a pretty good job of seeing where your where your mob tokens are, and then just going there and taking the item and then getting, a, getting away. <laughs> uh, that Vagabond. <laughs> They're the worst. Uh, that That's, that's another part of this, too, real quick, of like, there's a draft pool situation and the vagabonds picked man the lord of the hundreds looks way less attractive <laughs> i guess i guess actually the inverse is the worst when the vagabond is picked after you because they get to go run around the ruins first in turn order yeah. right in either case you don't want that little monster in the game when you're in the game correct yeah uh but if that little monster is not in the game and it looks like yeah you're gonna have a good time going for those ruin items what you need to try and go for is a board position where you can incite in a ruin clearing. Because getting that online on turn one is going to be the best way for you to stay competitive and score those points. We didn't really talk about that when we talked about Jubilant, but that's like also the huge reason to do this, right? Yeah, that's that's the major goal of that opening, is to try and secure those items. You don't get a point from the ruins, though. I know, but you get an item. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we were just highlighting killing cardboard, but, like, this is the, uh, way more important, honestly. Well, this is of equal importance. Yeah, so, something to consider, for sure. My mood is measured. <laughs> Sea Coyote has a nice quote. He says, Warlord can be slow out of the gate, and that's okay. Don't feel the need to overstretch early in the game and allow your Warlord and Strongholds to get taken out. If you focus on slowly building your position and strength, you can often catch up on points. By just crushing those who got ahead of you. Yeah. That's really good advice. That's the arc this is, of yeah. this faction is like, 
I'm going to be slow, but I'm going to be powerful on the board. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to take that power and crabs in a bucket everybody down. <laughs> <laughs> really on display in Nazi Coyote game. Again, I, I think it's a must watch. It's a really, really excellent mm-hmm. demonstration of the Warlord philosophy and tactics. Okay. So we got a good handle on our early game, Kyle. We yeah. got some strongholds built. We're trying to get three of those by like turn two or three, right? Uh, yeah. And we want to oppress three clearings, which is easier or harder to do, depending on the faction mix. Looking at you, Marquise de Cat. Uh, Corvid conspiracy lizard cult those those guys are going to get in our way Uh, but let's say we do we got our three clearings we got our three strongholds what are we hoping to do in the middle of the game yeah so middle game we have some different types of objectives going on we want to build our action economy up to at least two command and two prowess that's like a good solid mid game goal I feel like which is just one item in each right correct it's it's easier said than done if you have access to the ruin items this is going to be really easy to do uh if you don't, then you're going to be looking for opportunities to use looters very strategically. You want to prioritize getting that commanded prowess up to two each. Prowess items are more valuable individually because they get you recruits as well as kind of double actions. So really prioritize those if you have the choice. Now, strategically, overall, you have a couple of competing goals. And I feel like I see players fall into this kind of trap all the time. Because something's going to happen where there's going to be like a cat that goes into your back line and it's just a single cat and it's really annoying or like a lizard recruits around you and you're just like, come on, I just <laughs> secured these clearings Get and now you're going <laughs> to you're going to put a guy just in my clearing right now. I'm going to do that to me. So the choice kind of becomes you can sit back and try and maintain your oppression baseline by just continually like clearing out your back line and not getting out on the map. I, I want to reiterate how easy that is for your opponents to do too, because like it's so tempting for them to be like, oh, all we got to do is just put a little lizard here and he can't depress that much. Done. And then that does, I guess, quote unquote, clog up your actions, cleaning up the back line. But as Kyle's saying, that's not a bad thing if you have a stable amount of points and are gaining stuff from it. Right. So it's nice to have those oppressed points. Totally is. And if you're very fastidious about cleaning out the back line, then you can maintain that oppression scoring. However, it takes very little for your opponent to put one warrior in that clearing that they don't care about. At the same time, they are building up their economy. They are building up their scoring mechanism. So you have to balance that like cleaning house with going out on the map, getting in your opponent's face, and and you know slowing them down actively by applying pressure, by playing dynamically. And these goals, like, fight against each other. And it's a a main source of strategic tension that I see in all Warlord games. It's like, do you put more effort and energy into securing oppression? Or do you, like, go out on the map? Maybe you're not scoring oppression for it, but you are, like, hitting some critical infrastructure. The best thing, obviously, is to try and find ways to do both. But while you're trying to kind of, like, wrestle with that and navigate that decision, I've got a couple of nice quotes here. Uh, Walrus Law has a good quote. He says... Warlord cares about three clearings, five clearings, and six clearings for oppression. Those are the thresholds. The smart rat pilot will build strongholds in their three key clearings the first two turns, and then start to move to control half of the map. Which is ambitious, but it's a nice goal. You should never go for a fourth clearing just because, since it doesn't help you. Make sure you're moving and battling to slow down the other factions as well as maintaining your area of control. So I just feel like he put that really nicely, like very succinctly. That is our kind of point of tension that we're really wrestling with in the mid game. 
Yeah, I guess I kind of thought like, well, you get four, so it's easier next turn to get five. Yeah, potentially, I guess. But, uh, you know, make sure that if you're going for that fourth clearing, that it is checking the box of slowing down another faction, I guess, instead of, you know, doing a potential oppress for the future kind of thing. Yeah, we don't score enough points to, like, afford that luxury, maybe. We, mm-hmm. hey, you're already talking like mid game. I was like, you know, this is like turn three, four, five, right? You're like, yep. Find the threats and and take them down. And it's like, whoa, yep. that's uh, that's earlier than we've ever discussed doing that for a faction. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think it benefits you to go out and punch mm-hmm. with this faction a lot. Mm-hmm. Oppressing think- five clearings is you're stretched pretty thin though. Mm-hmm. At that point, usually, yeah, it's yeah. it's really easy to disrupt five. But yeah, you should go for it. <laughs> um, the other thing to consider in the mid game is that it can become very easy to overextend, just like you're talking about, Jake. You can get you can stretch too thin and lose your warlord if you're not careful, and that obviously is a huge blow to your scoring tempo. Don't want to do that. Don't make that mistake in the mid game. Squidmark has a nice quote. He says, "Knowing when the table is going to hit you is huge. If pressure is coming, either hit first or put the warlord and your good stronghold clearing in different places by the end of the turn. Make them choose to hurt you in one way or the other, not both at once. So kind of separating your warlord from your important stronghold clearing is um, a good way to you know, force a decision instead of having them go and wreck your whole shop. And let's go to the end game. The end of the road. How do we find the win? Mm-hmm. You need to become a cardboard-seeking missile. <laughs> Like a shark. You must be able to smell. new analogy. <laughs> yeah. Be a missile. Like a shark. <laughs> I couldn't decide what I wanted it to be. It's kind of like both. You must be able to smell one drop of cardboard in the ocean and track it down ruthlessly. <laughs> All right. So uh, we haven't said it enough, but you have to, you have to battle away cardboard to make up the gap yeah that's how you're gonna find your win so look at the board imagine that all the warriors are gone where is the cardboard that's where you should go don't worry about the warriors go for the cardboard yeah no one has an easier time taking out all the warriors in a clearing than you do yeah especially with the help of a mood that could help with that whether it be relentless or wrathful or even scroll 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 those two stubborn. Two. stubborn maybe yeah well th- this is with this in mind this is a nice time to consider using lavish to temporarily boost your warrior count and regain one of those uh, moves that's going to really help you relentless being a pretty key one like if you need to have multiple battles against like a mole stack or something it might be nice to get an extra two warrior bonus and an extra battle out of it mm-hmm. um yeah so i guess in an ideal world if you've kept your strongholds going and you have plenty of forces based on that. Now it's time to send your warlord kind of warrior ball on a march of destruction all around the map, cleaning up cardboard and finding your way to the win. I would say that like we're in range of winning at around like 24, 25 points. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, we could probably do it. But like in most things in life, timing is everything. To find the win of the rats, you need to understand how the other factions at the table are scoring. Use that knowledge to prioritize who you're punching and when. Stopping the leader at just the right time 
is what's going to allow the Lord of the Hundreds to eke out the victory. Mm-hmm. You got to grind the game down. Can't let anyone <laughs> run away with it too hard. Gosh. Sounds fun. This game rocks with Lord of the Hundreds. I, I seriously think this is maybe my new favorite faction. I, I love that they are so constructed to be off balance in such a way that it forces them to get out on the board and like mess things up. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> Guys, what do we think? Any thoughts about our winning strategy plan for Lord of the Hundreds? It's just, yeah, I feel like this is a very situational faction of like you know it's like how do you find your win well you have to stop the leader who's the leader well you have to use all your root knowledge to know that so in in one way they're a pretty easy faction to understand they're pretty straightforward their actions and mechanisms aren't crazy hard to understand or anything but finding the win i think is going to be very difficult because you have to understand everything that's happening and how best to disrupt those people, right? And we know yeah. dealing with the Woodland Alliance is different than dealing with the birds, which is different dealing with the moles. So and you have a very sharp tool that you can use, which is your warriors, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> battling. Well, and and uh, the you know the additional challenge of turning yourself into a cardboard seeking shark missile. Unlike the badger puzzle, which is about kind of where you need to be. And when this is kind of like how you kill, yeah, <laughs> right? It's because you're gonna kill. It's just a matter of like your timing and your tempo of it. Yes, and that kind of determines how you approach a strategy. Maybe more than most factions, the warlord really relies on reading the board state for their strategy choice. You can't Every just kind of go in with like a I know this is gonna work. It's more like I know this is gonna work in this situation. Now, what situation am I in? Right. Yeah. You don't get any turns off uh, with warlord. Yeah. You got to be very active every turn to make uh, to make that final sprint for the finish line. So the striking range with them is uh, similar to a lot of the big factions, right? But but because they don't score in bursts, they score reliably. It's maybe a little higher, like in the twenty five ish range. Yep, I think that's likely for them. What about um, dominance? They... You trying this? <laughs> oh, here's the thing about dominance with Lord of the Hundreds. I think. So in, in, there is a world where they have strongholds on all the right clearings. You know, they're recruiting a bunch of rats every turn. Maybe they have stubborn or something that lets them, you know, resist the hits from everybody else. They can use their turn to, like, battle away a bunch of warriors. Like, you know, maybe they can use attrition to somehow get there. But the thing is, it's like, if they really wanted to use, like, the early timing window for dominance, which we've said on this podcast is probably the most promising. The thing is, they don't score fast enough to make that early timing window early enough. That by the time they hit 10 points, usually the rest of the table is, like, online. They've got warriors ready to go. Like, things are looking good. I I just feel like it's a little too little too late to go really, realistically go for a dominance attack. I have a question in that regard, though, is because by the time they get to 10, they have enough of a horde, ideally, to withhold or to hold on to those clearings. I, I mean, guess potentially using, like, Lavish or something, they yeah. could just, like, really pump their warrior count. But I, I, I feel like it'd be really tough. Dominance itself is a situational strategy, right? So, yeah. and as we've talked about with his with the Warlord's crafting abilities, which is really based on how lucky their stronghold placement is. And when I say lucky, it's because we're placing it kind of based on where we're at, not based on what we want. Yeah, and what and of the card we draw. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. So dominance has fallen into our lap and it feels like a better option than going against the whole table and maybe you're isolated enough right now that the other players can't get to you 
then maybe yeah sure yeah dominance is very situational usually a losing situation <laughs> uh all right so let's talk about the things to watch out for what are our weaknesses what is the achilles heel of this angry rat here's here's what i like to say oppression disruption is super easy i think that's the main achilles heel it costs other factions basically nothing to like totally ruin your passive scoring <laughs> um so the, what, what i like to say about this is to counter people disrupting your oppression the best thing to do is to make sure that your kind of like board presence is compact meaning try and find a bunch of clearings that are all like close together and easy to access from each other uh on autumn map a good example would be like that kind of like south um western kind of like cluster area down there near cancun and all that there's like a bunch of clearings that are all connected together um it's it's easier to clean your back line when your whirler doesn't have to march like halfway across the map to get to a stray soldier um so keeping a compact shape on the board is going to help you uh manage the number of actions needed to maintain oppression if you have a pretty stocked horde one thing i would recommend is using some of those command actions to kind of redistribute your forces away from your stronghold clearings. Because you can, since you're recruiting there every turn, use some of those command actions to kind of populate those like lesser oppressed clearings. That way, if you have to battle there or something, um, you'll have somebody left over at the end. It's just like a nice way to prepare, keep yourself in a competitive spot. Yeah, I, I've played Lord of the Hundreds probably like five times, maybe. So not a lot. And I find the thing that, is the most frustrating for me is that I always feel like my warlord's in the wrong clearing. Yeah, I, yeah, always, I agree with that. Yep. I always feel like, oh, somebody just put stuff on my back line. And I'm like, my warlord's not there. I don't have a lot of command actions to deal with this. Do I waste my whole turn bringing my warlord back here? You know, and then yeah. like next turn I have to go out again. And it's just like all <laughs> these actions that I'm, it yeah. feels like I'm wasting to deal with like a lizard and a crow, you know? Right. Yeah, you don't want to get sucked into the yo-yo. Right. It's it's really nice to be able to use the command for that. Uh, but you got to be positioned well to do it and be compact for sure. Uh, we talked about the mob token explosion risks. Uh, by feeding other people points, you actually just let them outrace you. So don't feed them points. Use bitter. And lastly, card wealth. We keep talking about this. Card wealth is a major handicap for Lord of the Hundreds. You need cards. But you also need to spend cards. <laughs> so the best thing to do is start with a great hand. Be ready to craft something <laughs> on turn one. Build a stronghold if you can. And that rowdy mood is actually so helpful in the mid and late game to uh, help get you uh, the additional flexibility you need to close it out. You don't really need to spend too many cards, but there's enough you need to spend within the game that you've got to do something about it, right? Yeah, it's just so easy to run out of cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's blitz through these faction interactions. Yeah, I love this. Let's talk about the cats. Obviously, the cats start everywhere, which Ugh, is a big problem. Gross. <laughs> but I think the cats are actually like fun to play against as Warlord, because they become less of a problem as the game goes on. They're scoring at a slow and steady pace, just like you, and they generate a bunch of cardboard. <laughs> what burns better than wood? Ooh. <laughs> there you Gardens. go. Gardens. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Perhaps. The only thing to be kind of aware of 
is that the cats can use your mob tokens to free up building slots and then like rebuild on them every turn. Yes. They're going to take advantage of you. Yeah. I feel like I don't see that too often, but that is a strategy that has been done apparently. Yeah. It's like kind of late game cats would do that. Right. Yeah. It's pretty galaxy brain if you're able to pull that off. Lastly, just remember the cats can field a pretty hefty army. So make sure to respect that and just be aware that if they really focus on it, they can take down your warlord. Mm -hmm. They can field an army that's sizable enough to do that. So respect the cats, but also punch a sawmill. You'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We got the eerie dynasties. I feel like it's tough playing against the birds. They snowball. They score fast. They can field a big army, so they're tough. They also expand like crazy, which means that they can easily like send birds into your back line with their huge mobility advantage. They, like the moles, feel like the faction that'll just kind of reliably be on the board. You can't always deal with them, and they're going to yeah. score faster than you will, right? Mm-hmm. It, absolutely. So this is a faction that you will want to be taking out roosts as early in the game as possible. Because yeah. you have to slow down their scoring tempo. That is the only way that you are going to be having a shot at winning. So really, really focus on those roosts. Find a, a, a you know lightly defended roost and just go get it. Like, don't let them have it for free. Also, table talk them. Like, if you're the hundreds, they're the other threat probably on the board, right? And if you're scoring behind them, ideally, then they look more like the threat and highlight that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if you'll get away with it because you're still the Lord of the Hundreds. but <laughs> yeah, I'm having tournament flashbacks. Yeah, well, you should. All right. Here's the interaction I've been curious about this whole time, Kyle. The Woodland yeah. Alliance and the Lord of Hundreds. What's going on? Yeah, this is this is one of those they kind of hurt each other. So I, I describe it as like kind of a pain to play against the Woodland Alliance, but it is manageable if the positioning is right. The most annoying thing about the Alliance is definitely the Outrage, because you just don't have that many cards to begin with, and they're going to take all your cards. And so you're going to just have nothing in your hand forever, which is very annoying. Now, the mob tokens at the top of your turn during the raise step will remove all cardboard, including Sympathy, which means that whatever card you start your turn with, most likely is going to be just immediately gone before you can even do anything. (laughs) Um, You could guess a plot, I guess, Mm -hmm. for the raise step. That's about it. So... You are going to be card poor. However, the flip side of that is the Woodland Alliance is not going to be able to spread their sympathy very far. And if, as soon as a mob token gets in the same clearing as a base, they are going to be desperate to get rid of it. And they don't want to use actions to attack. Correct. So you are just going to be, if you occupy their base clearing and drop a mob, they're going to have a ton of trouble fighting against that. Yeah. In that way, you can kind of really keep them hemmed in. Um, also, because the Lord of Hundreds tends to have a bunch of warriors, the like move out and organize thing that Woodland Alliance does, tougher. It's tougher if you're in Hundreds territory, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, so the mob tokens are crucial for keeping their spread limited and keeping their sympathy manageable while you slow and steady towards the finish line. If you can't contain the Woodland Alliance... They can burst to a victory long before you are even close. Mm-hmm. So it is super, super crucial to get your mob positioning just right. I like the idea of making a cordon around like any choke point 
that you can to keep the spread limited. Focus on those points. Uh, when I was with an alliance and played against the Lord of the Hundreds on the winter map in the tournament, I got completely shut down by those mob tokens. Really? So it is totally possible. Yeah, I remember that. But my question is, is like, if you're card poor, you're probably not suffering from the outrage. They're still gaining followers by drawing from the deck, but like your chances of losing a card aren't too bad, right? And you want to burn through that cardboard and you're so eager to burn their stuff down. Well, that's the thing is they're just feeding you some some guac points right at that point which is really nice yeah you it's actually guac. boosting your scoring tempo your whole meal is guac a press feels like the extra points honestly yeah it's yeah. a little fatty but you're grandiose it's fine <laughs> <laughs> exactly spicy that'd be a fun uh mood spicy spicy, spicy. there's naughty and spicy <laughs> and sporty all right, um, <laughs> what about the Vagabond, Kyle? This is another huge interaction with the Lord of the Hundreds. Uh, the Vagabond is the worst. I hate being in the same game as the Vagabond as Lord of the Hundreds. Same. They are annoying. Why? Because they almost always win the Ruin item race. There's there's a good deal of chance when you're spreading the mobs that it's just going to go to the wrong clearing, and then you're totally like screwed. <laughs> or just the Vagabond's going to go there first and be like, nah, I take it. Exactly. They are not dealing with RNG in any way, except like, hmm, I wonder what item I'm going to yeah. absolutely 100% guaranteed get. Little monsters. And they score a point for it. <sighs> I know. The flip side, though, is that the Hundreds usually has the spare actions and warriors necessary to pummel the Vagabond and keep them in the forest. Um, This is something you can do early, and I recommend you do it. Um, Also, I will say... The Vagabond gets almost nothing by aiding the Lord of the Hundreds. Right. Because they can't grab any items because they're not going in the crafted items box. There is no crafted items box for Lord of the Hundreds. The Vagabond doesn't really like you in the game either, honestly, which is yeah. a, which is a slight comfort because it would be it'd be awful if he could take your item. <laughs> but like the right. fact that he also just kind of doesn't benefit from your presence and he has the ability or we have the ability to hit him hard. He's he's not benefited by from you being in the game either. So there is at least that slight upside true here's another downside though gang i experienced this in my irl game the vagabond is an enemy piece that cannot be removed yes mm-hmm. that's true they will just stop your oppression in a clearing period you can yeah, hit them can all you it. want it's going to take until their next turn before they slip into the forest so yeah brutal super annoying i think the the interaction between these two factions in particular is kind of still evolving yeah um it's it's something where we we watch the meta shift slightly over the course of the tournament um it's clear that they are rivals but the specifics of these interactions still evolving and i i remember patrick leader kind of talking about how the warlord because he initially designed the warlord and the vagabond was talking about how a lot of the things that are used in the warlord's design were like ideas for the vagabond at the beginning of design oh, route. Oh, interesting. Like the idea that. that you'd be like one guy like leading a group of people around <laughs> and stuff, but then it got changed to where you were just one guy and you just had a bunch <laughs> of items. Um but so, you could yeah. lead them around if you were allied with them. Well that's true. Yeah, you can yeah. do that. You're right. You're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So so uh anyway, uh just kind of a fun thing that it's the same designer and like they yeah. are kind of it is the shadow vagabond. Uh, rather than having one piece, you have a, a, a lord of hundreds of pieces, you know? <laughs> right. All right. What about the river folk? 
Ooh, more cards, you say? <laughs> uh, yeah, hundreds love extra cards. And early in the game, the Riverfolk can be very helpful to this faction. It can work together really nicely. Also, a lot of cardboard around. And you can usually loot it uh, for free. Right, and they're <laughs> item the crafters. So, yeah, that's yeah. great. So very symbiotic there. Um, early buys can be great for getting those strongholds and mob tokens established. Uh, we just need to be careful about racing because the otters can go off to the races in a heartbeat. And when they make that flip, it can be hard to stop them. So I would say be very judicious about when you purchase, go hit some warriors. You can definitely do that. So I would encourage you to do that. Just keep the woodland in balance if you're going to buy cards. And then we have, I would say our second greatest nemesis and that is the lizards oh the lizards this pacifist faction is the (laughs) thorn in our side as lord of the hundreds they make life a living hell (laughs) that's mainly because they can just appear in your clearings with by replacing your warriors with theirs hello (laughs) (laughs) i'm here now yeah well i mean their recruit is not restricted by anything you know they can just recruit a warrior they don't even have to spend their acolytes to yeah, do that right you know? yeah so they can disrupt your press for free just because they feel like it's fun and they want to and i know that they think it's fun <laughs> i see it well <laughs> also it out there uh devil's advocate here as the lizards player like throwing those clearings like when you first are starting to play the lizards, you're like, oh, here's the strategy. I'm going to recruit in a bunch of other people's clearings so they kill my lizards so they become acolytes. And then yeah. you find out that no one cares about your lizards. <laughs> yeah, They just let Except- them exist in their clearings. No one fights them because they know it kind of helps you. And they're not doing anything problematic in the clearing because they can't move or battle. Uh, however, the Lord of Hundreds is really mad that you recruited there and will kill those lizards because they need to oppress. So a lizard player is going to be trying to take advantage of that. Yeah. And so it'll be a steady trickle of acolytes, mm-hmm. uh, which is super annoying to deal with. <laughs> but honestly, it's just better to like let them have the acolytes and just score the points. Mm. Because they also score very slowly. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I would say that they're annoying, but they're not like a mortal threat usually. Mm-hmm. Remember, they can't convert your warlord ever. Can't uh, remove it outside of battle. Right. If the lizards ever become a problem, I would say the hundreds are uniquely equipped to deal with them for two reasons. One is they give a bunch of battle actions, and we know the lizards can't stand up to more than like three battles. Right. Uh, but number two is if you incite or get a mob token into a clearing with gardens, how are the lizards going to deal with that? It is like, I I think it's like sad and almost a little funny to watch a lizards player just be like, there's nothing I can do about this undefended mob token in my clearing. It's the <laughs> like, most pathetic thing in Root. Is somebody's like, oh, here's a mob here. And the lizards go, well, that's so it. So it is written. <laughs> it is the equivalent of that meme that's like, this is fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like everything's on fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you are like, okay, so I'm going to lose my gardens. I'm going to lose two <laughs> cards. Um, and I don't get any acolytes. Okay. You know? Okay. Um, granted, you can rebuild those gardens if you have the cards in your hand. Uh, True. <laughs> I'm always taking the perspective of the Lizards player. I'm so sorry. We're talking about the Lord of Hundreds. It's okay, Sam. It's an interesting it. interaction. <laughs> yeah. So they hurt us. We hurt them. It's uh, it's it's nice in that way. 
So let's move on to the moles. The underground duchy is very dangerous to play against because they are good at racing and because they don't need to have a huge board presence in order to score a bunch of points. They can easily keep pace with the warlord through like a small mole type of situation without being exposed in any way. I would say if you are, if you get the sense that the moles player is going to go for a small mole type of situation, just take out the moles. Go for those like little solo moles. Try and go for them as early as turn one. Because uh, anything you can do to slow down the moles is just going to give you a better shot to win the game. They are good racers. Uh, make them pay if they decide to go for like a small approach. And then other than that, I would say like if they start building buildings, it's like the blinking red light, you know, go for the punitive mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> They're the other ones that can pop into anywhere they want, though, right? Like we should be afraid of the dig potential for just like disrupt. That is very true. Yeah. Digging into the back line to take out some strongholds could be a major setback for you. So uh, be aware. I, I would say it's maybe important in a game with the moles to have a compact backline for this reason you also just can't get to them if they don't want you to right like that feels that feels like a part of the problem right we gotta talk to cole about this okay so this is going back to you don't like moles design <laughs> yeah you yeah. just said they can just withdraw from the board well yeah, I, I said I, they can, well they might the thing is sam is like realistically you can't small your way to victory no, you can smull your way to the last two turns. and then right, Yes, yes. Okay, no, they add a mood where you can go into the burrow. I just think you should be able to go into the burrow. That's all we need. Just you use a tunnel token to go into the burrow. What happens that when the tunnel awesome. gets killed? Are you trapped? They can't kill the tunnel. Right. So it would be on the players. And if we kill the tunnel, then great. We're where we're at. But what we if we bury that the warlord alive and he just stays in the burrow? Oh, I see. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I see. Once we go into the burrow, what if <laughs> we're not takes coming out? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it should count for a press. If you can, if you can take out all the moles. All right. Anyway. Anyway, uh, that'd be amazing. Enough well, on there's some theory crafting discussion we can have yeah, on yeah. that for sure. All right, Corvids. I know these yeah. guys suck for the Warlords. Yeah, as well. this is. I would say the Corvids are maybe even worse to play against than the Lizards. I think so. Yeah. There is obviously some snare potential, which stops your Warlord from recruiting or moving out of that clearing, and it prevents you from inciting to help clean up the snare. Um, it also prevents you from using lavish or bitter to gain warriors around your warlord. There's just like the snare can be the slayer of warlords. So keep that in mind. But also the thing is Corvid recruiting I think, is the thing that's the hardest to deal with. I think they that's can the slayer yeah. of warlord. One card and put crows just like all of your backline for free and not even have to move them. They're worse than lizards. They'll just go to all of all yeah. of them. They want. And it's like, yeah, Corvid, it's like they didn't even do it on purpose. They just like recruit everywhere in all the fox clearings. Maybe one of those is on your back line. They're like, great, just not going to use that guy. Going to use and the that, other three. You, you know? can't really realistically expose them because you have so few cards. And your fighting against them is always going to deal an extra hit to you. Or, well, uh, the, the uncovered plots will always deal right. an extra hit to you. Yeah, embedded agents is quite annoying. I would say the one saving grace is that the Corvids usually don't have a very high warrior density around mm -hmm. those plots, mm -hmm. so taking them out, which you're going to want to do for cardboard anyway, at the same time as checking them super hard. So um, I, I would say it's it's easy to keep them in balance 
kind of cardboard wise, but they can slow you down so disproportionately. Yeah. That it, it's just like, yeah, I don't feel like the Corvids annoying. make out better in this interaction, but they will sure make your game so much worse. <laughs> yeah, they will tank your game and you can easily tank theirs too. Yep. I mean, this kind of reminds me of um, Lizards and Woodland Alliance. Yeah. Like that relationship is just so stabby and fraught like (laughs) (laughs) like Corvids and warlord is exactly the same way yeah and now for the first time ever a faction interaction with the badgers Ooh, Ooh. exciting Ah, guys i held a badger meeple today (laughs) they're big okay so it was it changed my life he looks just like me (laughs) badgers i described this faction with in the mix with the warlord as being tricky Mm. yeah the good news is they move around a lot so that leaves space for you to fill in to gain impress points. The bad news is it's a burst faction. So while you're plodding along, getting your two to five points a turn, they can just, you know, shoot up and, you know, gain like 13 points and win the game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you got to be really, really aware of the threats you got to pay attention to that retinue and know exactly what type of clearing they are going to go to to recover relics and commit to hitting those warriors when they're in your zone and if they're far away from you the best thing to do is soak up the free space they left behind and take out the straggling warriors you don't want them turning into way stations that they can recruit from we've seen in the past that all it takes to slow down the badgers pretty significantly is just to hit their warriors they are kind of like the river folk. If you can take out the warriors, that is their source of uh, recovering relics. That's the way that they rule in order to delve. And it costs them cards to recruit them. Yeah, that's the way. It's very play. expensive to replace. Exactly. So going after those warriors sooner rather than later is going to be quite helpful. Um, although I will say it's tricky, too, because you kind of want the badgers to be a threat that you can spotlight. This is a this is a tough interaction because it they're so appropriately named as the Marauders expansion factions mm-hmm. because they're both factions that are just like rampaging through the forest, be like, I'm here now. We're fighting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is happening. And like they kind of fight past each other and through each other and then just keep going. That's it's like true. that's what I felt every time I've played them. Um and the, yeah, they been... don't specifically counter each other, no. but they do cause friction as they like grind by each other. They're both doing really... their they're both doing their own thing aggressively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, one's really like aggressive and one's really defensive too. So mm-hmm. in that way they're kind of like yin and yang, but they're Who's defensive? You mean the badgers are defensive? Yeah, cuz they have the devout knights or whatever they can soak sure. a hit. But by their nature, they need to go fight to go do their thing. And so yeah. they're 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 defensive I guess in like their stature, but they're aggressive in their actions. Oh, like yeah. they always have to be everywhere or they have to be in every clearing at some point. Yeah. Right. Sniffing out those relics, battling everybody because they have to. Big scare quotes. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm going to jump to special teams for the badgers really fast because you can false orders a badger with a relic onto a mob token before the raise step. Oh, that's delicious. This is some top notch theory crafting from Nitro. Rap who pointed this out <laughs> on our Woodland War Machine channel in the Good Time Society Discord. Check it out for more hot root tips like this this made me so happy to see oh man! i just like would love to see that in a real game <laughs> yeah that's great uh there was a lot of great discussion on lord of the hundreds yeah so come and join the discord on the woodland war machine channel on the good time society discord what, uh in Jake? a clearing with 
I was just going to say, if you guys like this discussion, you should come on and join the Good Time Society Discord, specifically the Woodland War Machine channel. We've been talking all the strategies for this faction. You'll love it. And if you say it three times, Garrick will appear. Um, So one other fun one is if you're in a clearing with two undefended moles buildings, obviously you want them to pay the price of failure as many times as possible. The way to do it is if they have an item in their crafted items box, you use looters. (laughs) And that way, you can add insult to injury or greediness to goriness, as I put it here. Nice. Yeah, that uh, undefended extra hit is going to take out one building, and then you can go back in to clean up. Oh, man. For two instances of price of failure. Uh, Quick question. Can you loot looters if they don't have an item? No. No, they must have an item in their crafted items box. Yeah, dang. Any more special teams? Yeah, this is a fun one. Uh... This came up, uh, PJ Darker mentioned it in our Discord. That's soup kitchens. Oh, great. Yeah, people will love this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I admit, this one's a little silly, but it's worth mentioning. The card or the fun. tactic? <laughs> the tactic. Okay. So soup kitchen, obviously, is uh, all your tokens count towards rule, and all your tokens count twice. Okay. okay? So if you have a mob token that's like going to count for two rule presence points or whatever. <laughs> All right, so if you have Soup Kitchens crafted as the Lord of the Hundreds, then technically a single solitary mob token in a clearing could rule that clearing by itself and count towards those sweet, sweet oppressed points. Thank you, PJ Darker, for pointing that out. Yeah, it's a good interaction. Probably not worth it, but... Yeah, no, it's definitely silly, but it it could work. Is that because a mob is considered a hundreds piece, which is one of the requirements for oppression? Very specifically, yes. Okay, that's a good catch, all right. Yeah, that's it. That's it for special teams. I'm sure there's a couple of other fun interactions that um, I couldn't think of. Uh, but if you have any fun ideas for uh, weird edge cases and fun Lord of the Hundreds interactions, let us know over on the Discord. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I got one. I got one. We talked about it one time on the show, I think when Lord of the Hundreds came out. That was when the Lord of Hundreds buys mercenaries from the Riverfolk Company, mm-hmm. then those warriors uh, count towards rule during daylight and evening, right? So they work right. for oppress. However, a trade post will make it so you don't oppress that clearing. Correct. Because it, yeah, is not, it is an enemy piece that is, you know, <laughs> and the warriors don't count as enemy pieces when they're mercenaried. However, that token still does. Yeah, so yeah. Just a little sign with a rabbit on it means that clearing is not oppressed. <laughs> I have nope, a rules nope. question on that though, Sam. Yeah, it's not a hundred. A mercenary is not a hundreds piece, is it? No. That's so correct. you must have at least. Oh, along with the mercenaries, you could have a piece single mob token sure, and sure. four otters that you have mercenaried, and that would count towards oppression. But Got if it. there is a trade post, then it no longer does. Right. Okay, that makes more sense. All right, and then let's run through the the maps. We're super lightning quick here. Um, I'm gonna break these into two sections. There's two good ones, and there's two like weird bad ones. <laughs> okay, the two good ones are autumn map and winter map. That's what I thought. And autumn map is nice because the interconnectedness of the clearings means that clearing your back line of those pesky opponent pieces disrupting your oppression is a little bit easier. You can have you can find more efficient pathways for your warlord to cruise on through and uh, break up those uh, those clearings. Also, those mobs are going to spread good. 
yeah, a lot of connectivity on that map means those mobs have a better chance of spreading really nicely. Also, the uh, clearing distribution um, gives you a way higher chance of actually spreading that mob every turn and not just getting stuck, which is great. Uh, Winter map is nice for Warlord because... Warlord has been known to actually take over half of this map. Uh, <laughs> like uh, Walrus Law mentioned, taking over half the map being a, a mid-game goal. Uh, it's been known to happen here. This is the best Warlord map, I claim, because <laughs> it can be a little slower and more grindy than the other maps, which is exactly the scoring tempo that Warlord yeah. wants in order to pull ahead and win the game. Also, placing those mob tokens in any of those checkpoints and defending them can help suppress the other factions and enforce those borders as you take over half of the map um plus you want them in the center anyway because that's where all the ruins are so this is win 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 for warlord on winter map do you want to be in the south i think so i think it's a little easier it's maybe slightly easier to oppress the clearings in the north because they're just harder to get to so once you clear them it's like that's it but being in the south and controlling the southern checkpoint to me is more advantageous because you can reach the other factions easier and it's it's where the ruins are mm -hmm. and so that, that's also where the nice uh building slots in the south are located so being central is is often good for um keeping those clearings that you've oppressed which is great then we got the lake map i feel like this is very tough for warlord for one the ruins are spread out in like a really crazy way yeah yeah um which makes it slow to get the mobs around to them. Also, it's very easy to get trapped and stuck in any one of those little pockets on that map, um, which is just death for the warlord. If he can't escape and get out and like affect the map, like what are you doing? <laughs> on the plus side, the fairy gets you a card. Hey. So that's nice. Plus, I mean, imagine the little warlord meeple holding a flag on the fairy. <laughs> that's Come pretty on. cool. That's pretty He's a little cool. pirate now. <laughs> he looks like me uh, this <laughs> ship has rats and lastly we've got the mountain map which I wouldn't say is bad but I think it's decent I think it's decent um, it's not often that you're going to have extra cards to open up those covered paths but you really want to because it's bonus points mm. right that's one way to make up that gap um, but it's not just points though opening up those paths actually gives you east west connectivity on the mountain map which is what you want as Warlord if you're going to go out and affect the other factions. The worst situation is when you're stuck on mountain map, just like locked on one side of the map, trying to like fight for territory with another couple of factions. And then there's another faction on the other side that's just like living free, super having a way easy time. Um, what I say is having more movement options can improve your ability to police the other factions on mountain map. You really, really want to consider setting up strongholds in one of those kind of satellite clearings around the pass. Yeah, it might need a rowdy opening for sure to get those extra cards. To That's a really good idea. Yeah. All right, Kyle, this has been a great guide. I'd love to hear your final thoughts on the Lord of Hundreds. Oh, man, this is this is my pleasure, you guys. I love this faction so much. They're a super fun and fighty faction. Maybe the most aggressive faction in Root. Um, the mechanics, like Jake pointed out, they interlock in such a cool way, creating that push-pull that puts you, the player, in charge of managing all these interactions in, in such a cool, empowering way. Um, there's some nuance for the moods. You know, choosing what mood you want one after the other takes a couple of tries to get down. But 
Um, I think the game plan for Lord of the Hundreds is pretty straightforward. So once you get a hold of those nuances, I think you're going to have a super fun time playing this faction every time you pick it up. Um, my my last thought about this faction is that the bulk of decision-making is going to center around your map presence and the division and placement of your forces. So if you like being like a general who's like sending the armies out to like do their different things, then this is definitely the faction for you. Yeah, that is fun. I like having warriors. <laughs> That's why I don't love being like Woodland Alliance or Vagabond because I'm like, ah, I want more pieces, you know? <laughs> and Warlord has a ton of There's pieces. There's plenty of pieces, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get a special die. It's cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I feel I feel like we've finally gotten a faction that is meant to rampage. Like every yeah. every big aggressive other faction in this game was like, yeah, we're aggressive, but <laughs> this guy's just yep, like, right. we're aggressive and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> full stop, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, it's really strange that in this war game it took until the third expansion to have like, oh, this is the good one at attacking. <laughs> you know i mean birds i guess were kind of that yeah there a was while. a lot of there was a lot of defaults but they but i cleverly like from a game design standpoint they weren't that simple right and right. this guy i'm not saying the warlord is simple by any means but this has a much more uh this accomplishes that goal so much more efficiently or yeah and, frequently and it, i think you're right i think the warlord is straightforward in their objective mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know um it takes a lot of nuance and it's not a simple faction necessarily to pilot all the way to 30 points. But I do think that if you're, if it's your first game of root, like you will kind of understand what you're doing with the Lord of hundreds. You probably won't win, but you'll be like, Oh, I get it. You know, <laughs> moving and fighting, moving and fighting. That's right. And to the, all the movers and shakers over on our discord, I want to say some thank yous for all the people who helped out with this guide. So shouts to nitro rev, go check out the YouTube channel over there. Good stuff. Got Garrick Samples Games, A.A. Ron, C. Coyote, Walrus Law, Nebuchadnezzar, shouts to Nebuchadnezzar, Squidmark, Lord of the Board, Trippin' Grannies, Geomorgski, Amu the Fox, Dark Mechanicus, and all the Wimmies out there. You guys make this podcast so much fun to do. Thanks for your input. Really helped with this guide a lot. I appreciate you all. We got into a territory of like, the popular band's yearly festival lineup there. Like, <laughs> oh, it's the yeah. Trippin' Grannies, <laughs> Geo Morgski, Emu the Fox, and Dark Mechanicus. <laughs> Just sound like a bunch of band names. They awesome. really do. Yeah. Well, that's that's Wimmy's for you. When we do Wimmy Fest, you know. And we know we how have... we're going to open it, right? With the crowd? Oh, yeah, that's right. We're They're gonna all going to be a... chanting. 